Hey guys, it's Jason here, and I'm back for number nine in these Amp Chat live streams. And absolutely stoked to be joined today by Mike Smith. Hey Mike, how you doing? How's it going? Yeah, it's going good, man. So Mike and I have known each other for a little while, uh, just kind of you know communicating. Just one of the contacts that, one of the awesome contacts that I've kind of managed to make and connect with through this amp community of you know professional builders and designers and um had the absolute pleasure of meeting mike uh face to face when you came down with slipknot to melbourne australia back in it was late march wasn't it uh yeah late march yeah so um that was an awesome oh it was it was fantastic to finally meet right and actually kind of Go and have a few beers and hang good out. Good pizza, stuff. good beers. Yeah, yeah, we did have good pizzas, good beers, and uh, we were led. I think we were led to the we were led to the pub by Bob Bob Strakel, who does front of house sound yes, for Slipknot. He, yes, he, he knew all the places to go, which was yep, because <laughs> it was meant to be me showing you where to go, but Bob already knew. Um, He's been there a couple of times. Yeah, I bet he has. I bet he has. I can see Bob's in the chat actually, so we're going to get to his question, Hi, Bob. At some point, um, <laughs> he wants, <laughs> he's going to ask you. Anyway, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, there's a few guys in the chat here. I want to say hi, Ryan. Yeah, Mike is the man, definitely. So, Good on, um, yeah, we're going to start, guys. Do obviously, if you've got questions for Mike, put them in the chat, right? And we will absolutely get to them. You know, we're going to spend a couple of hours here, so we've got time to get through stuff. Um, I'm going to start just by kind of talking with Mike a bit about his journey uh, with the company, with, with Omega Amp Works, how he got into it, and we'll kind of go from there. I do want to talk to Mike a bit about the whole gig with Mick Thompson um, and Slipknot as well and kind of, you know, how that how that happened and a bit about, you know, what's involved in, in making all of that work and, and successful because that's, to me, and I'm sure to the guys in the in the on the stream here is an endlessly fascinating subject. And when Mike was down with the band, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of get a very small glimpse into that world backstage. And it was, um, it was pretty mind blowing <laughs> to say the least. Right? <laughs> the scale of that is just pretty mind blowing. But man, if we yeah. start at the beginning, how, how did Omega Antwerp start and how did you kind of get into that, into this game? So 2008 and uh, it, it kind of starts, uh, in a weird place. I won't go into too much detail about how it started, but uh, 2008, I was uh, not 100% happy with uh, the job that I was at. It was very temporary. And um, met a guy who came into a Sam Ash, uh, Sam Ash music store that I was working at, just temporary, and uh, set up a guitar for him. His name is Chris Towning. Hey, Chris. He just moved to Australia, by the way. All right. Uh, yeah. yeah cool. uh, Chris played in a band called Barrier Dead. And he needed a uh, guitar setup, so I set the guitar up for him. He really liked it. He brought another guitar back the next day and wanted me to do some stuff on it. And then uh, basically hit me up like a week later and asked if I wanted to hang out and meet some guys, meet the rest of the band. And then he asked me if I wanted to go on tour. So I said, screw it. <laughs> uh, quit my job, went on tour for no pay <laughs> for a couple months. And uh, awesome. essentially... What that did was that kind of fueled the fire for me wanting to do something in the music industry. Uh, we did a couple tours. So you went Once, on tour, sorry to interrupt, Mike, but you went on yeah. tour as a, as a guitar tech? As a guitar tech, or, yeah. And what was your, like, 
what was your background prior to that? Could you kind of, were you a luthier? Could you do setups? No, no. So, I I mean, I, I'd been playing guitar since I was 12. So, uh, that was, you know, way in the olden days. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) And, um, I had always worked on my own guitars. I'd always set them up and uh, I had a pretty particular way that I like to set guitars up. And, uh, I have a, I have a lot of attention to detail with some things. So, um, you know, working in a guitar store, I got to work on guitars all the time and mess with amps and stuff like that. So that's kind of where that background came from. Um, and basically once we got done with tour, uh, we weren't hundred percent happy with some of the speaker cabs that the guys were using. I won't name the brands, but, uh, decided, you know what, I want to build a cab and see what happens. And it quickly unfolded and decided, you know, 2009, let's do something just part-time. And, and then it kind of, uh, went on from there. Had you, so the, yeah, I remember you, when we, when you came down and we, and we had a bit of a chat, you talked about this kind of thing, starting with, with cabinets. Yeah. Had you, had you done much with woodwork before that? It was just kind of like eh. straight into the, that side of it in, in high school. Yes. But yeah. not a whole lot after that. Uh, I've always been really hands-on with stuff. I love engineering. I love how things work. So, um, you know, me and my brother used to build stuff and make stuff explode all the time. So it was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the woodworking aspect of it, it, it came pretty quickly to me, actually. That's amazing. And did, did you like, um, did it kind of like, start to become something that you you built those cabs I started to get used by that band and then others took interest in it like how did it kind yeah of actually the the first band that we started working with uh they were friends of ours uh it was a band called the ghost inside and um after we had built a couple of prototypes of just like one by 12s and one by 15s they were all ported cabs using the electro voice evm 12l and evm 15l and they were supposed to be supplemental cabs to you know, existing four by twelves or something else. Okay. And uh, I brought one out, a two by twelve, for the guys uh, from our buddies from Amur to uh, try out. And uh, word quickly got around, and my buddy Aaron, that was uh, in the Ghost Inside at the time, said, "Hey, I want something. Let's do something crazy." And they ordered four twelve one fifteens. So it was all in one cab. Uh, It was a terrible design. But they loved them. It sounded awesome. Uh, it was Hang on, so, so four, insanely four twelves heavy. and one one fifteen in yes. a single cab. Yeah, and the fifteen was actually it oh had a uh, passive crossover network, so the fifteen okay. was only there for low end, and the twelves were there for all the uh, the good guitar stuff. That's insane. So, <laughs> we, I mean, what? we weren't the first ones by any means to do you know uh, low frequency drivers for a guitar. Like Rivera had already done stuff. A couple other people had done things, but uh, we wanted to implement it in a little bit different way. So, what's the um? What do you think? What are the key things that make a cabinet sound good? Is it the wood? Is it the joints? Yeah. Is it like a bit of everything? Uh, what, I mean, it's, the, that's a very very subjective question. But in my opinion, the way that we do things, also, I'll, I'll base it from my perspective because yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, everybody do. has their own you know opinion on on voicing for things. Um, it all plays a role. It's all balance in my opinion. Um, so when you actually look at the airspace and you look at all the parameters of, uh, the volume of a cab, 
and match it to the speakers and match it to the feel small parameters, getting the correct cue, getting the, you know, matching everything right. That's where you actually start to really uh, see benefits from proper design. Um, then you have to look at uh, material use. So, you know, Baltic birch versus MDF versus particle board, you know, et cetera. Everything kind of has a different sound because everything resonates differently. And when everything resonates differently, it's actually going to affect the speaker itself. If you have something that's insanely braced, uh, that has very little vibration, the speaker itself is actually going to be a little bit more efficient and it's going to provide a little bit more of a clear sound of what it's trying to portray from the beginning. Because when you're looking at, uh, say, the front and the rear baffle, the front baffle is what the speaker is attached to. Yep. Uh, a speaker is a resonating, vibrating uh, transducer. If you have the front baffle that is actually starting to vibrate as well, you can actually start to take away from the efficiency of that driver by having actual phase issues because the speaker may be wanting to push out. But at that time, if the cone is actually moving faster than the front baffle, which it would because it's very yeah. light, yep. when the baffle is moving a little bit, you can actually get inefficiencies. So now that doesn't mean that's a bad thing. Because there's numerous companies over the years that have used thinner woods that actually they want to vibrate, and those cabs sound phenomenal. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's a very subjective thing, uh, and there's a tremendous amount to it. But the way that we approach it is, is overall balance. We want to make sure that the cab isn't too bass heavy, too mid-range forward, or too bright on the top yeah. end. And uh, we essentially design our cabs with different, you know, with the proper airspace for the formula that I created uh, using the proper thickness of wood, which we use five ace thickness wood, which is uh, same as what Marshall does, uh, 15 yep. millimeter. Yep. And uh, we front load our cabs because we actually prefer the additional projection, the additional uh, mid range forward nature uh, that it gives. It's a little bit more clear overall. And, uh, you know, uh, the bracing internally and the baffling internally can actually assist with uh, uh, dampening vibrations in certain areas that you don't want to, uh, you know, have additional resonance as well as uh, decreasing standing waves internally. So you actually have a little bit clear low frequency. Yeah, man, that's fascinating. Because one, one of the things that um, occurred to me when you were describing that is that, you know, that kind of comment about balance, if you like. And I yeah. couldn't help but think of the similarities with circuit design and, and, a, and an amplifier, where you got this, you've got this kind of end goal in mind, right? You've got the sound in your head, so that you're, you know, you're seeking to reproduce. And of course, when you're looking at circuit design for an amplifier across the preamp stages and and the power amp, the whole thing has to be kind of in balance to achieve that outcome. Absolutely, um, it's some of the components, if you like. And but you know, I don't mean actual <laughs> resistors and caps. I mean like <laughs> the stages or the architecture of that of that design. Um, very similar concept, right? In terms of everything from the type of wood, the dimensions, front loading, reloading, all that, all that kind of stuff. It's pretty fascinating. Absolutely, I mean everything plays a role. I mean speakers have such a massive effect on the end sound. And small changes within a speaker itself, not the not the speaker cabinet, but the actual, you know, transducer itself. I mean, it's insane. Just the actual doping on the outside, the adhesives used, the stiffness of the suspension, the spider. Uh, everybody thinks, you know, everything, it's just the cone. It's uh, the cone is only a small part of it. 
even down to the magnet, the metal that's used, what kind yeah. of carbon content the metal is, how yeah. thick the back plate, the front plate are, you know, the, the voice coil gap, every single thing plays a role. And uh, like we were discussing before, you know, uh, it's everything is resonance and, and music instruments from the strings to the body, to the way that the pickups are picking it up. And um, it all plays a crucial role in finding that formula that people like uh, and that you like yourself is, is paramount to, you know, achieving a unique sound that's different from everybody else. Have you got into, into actual speaker design? Because you're, I mean, it's, it's clear to me that your yeah. knowledge of how speakers work and the components of them is, um, so, you know, uh, the eminence DV 77, Mick Thompson's yep. signature, uh, speaker yep. I designed, uh, our VM 1265, uh, I designed, um, I had some assistance from some of the guys at Eminence based on, you know, like, hey, is this part available? Can you do this? And then things that weren't available, we had to kind of alter to make it actually work properly. Uh, but as far as speaker design, I have a strong passion for it. And um, it's 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 ever evolving. <laughs> there's, uh, <laughs> there's there's many. I mean, we have two cabs behind me right now that are full of all different prototypes and stuff. So, yeah. And is that, is that the kind of thing? So, I mean, this is like, you know, it's not a, it's not, it's not something that, well, this is, what I was going to say, right. One of the things that I think is quite unique about, about your approach is that um, you've approached that you've approached the whole kind of, uh, you know, all the components in that make up the, the tonal elements and the amplifier from the, speaker and cabinet and kind of gone up from there whereas someone like myself i've probably gone i've gone straight into the kind of amplifier design and kind of work down from there so it's a different it's just coming at it from a different perspective but yeah. clearly a very important one it's i can't say that it's better or worse uh to do it the way that we did it um we definitely test it with other manufacturers cabs you know some of the staples out there the ones that are yeah. you know you find yeah, yeah, studios. yeah yeah. We had to make sure that our amps played nice with everything. But of course, you know, we knew what we wanted. We knew the sound that we were trying to achieve. So our cabs kind of were the basis that we, you know, voiced everything on. Um, we wanted to make sure they actually play well with different speakers too. And excuse me. And I'm sure, you know, you know, some amps love certain speakers. Some yes. amps hate certain speakers. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's why we've, over the years, we've, tried to load all of our stuff with uh speakers that we find blend the best with our amplifiers yeah it is a quick it's a question i get a lot you know like what what speakers is your amp designed for or it might be rephrased as um what speakers do you prefer with your amp that kind yeah. of that kind of thing right so yeah so i think it's right do you do you have like a do you have a single cab like a particular one that's used as the golden reference and then you test with others as well. Like yeah, so we still have one of our original designs, um, which I'll go into a little bit later, uh, that we use here. And then we have the most recent design that I just finished up uh, a few months ago that we're actually shipping those cabs off now. Um, it's it's kind of our golden reference that I listen to because I listen to it so many times every time we're testing an amp. Yeah, I'm sure just like yeah. you. You yep. have your riffs that you play that everybody's yeah. like, stop playing that, play something different. But yeah, we have a we have a golden reference that we use. Uh, we do yeah. try different speakers in it often 
to make sure that, you know, everything plays nice with it. But we also make uh, impulse responses of every single thing that we do. And then we listen to it critically uh, with our plugin and listen to it with recordings so we can actually hear what, uh, what works and what doesn't. Because a lot of times somebody can build something that may sound good in a room, but under a microphone, it reveals a lot of uh, deficiencies. Yeah, man, that's fascinating. And I do want to, I do want to ask you about that digital stuff um, shortly, right? Because that's yeah. that's something you've clearly pushed into, which I find really, really interesting. Um, man, one of the things that that's always struck me about about your stuff is that it looks different, yeah, like visually, <laughs> but like in a, in a, in a fan. I don't mean different bad. I mean different good, right? It's so hard. Yeah. You know, because I'm more of a kind of technical kind of engineering type brain, and I find that kind of the artistic side of it more challenging, if you like, right? You know, yeah. and there is that part of it of what we do. Um, and your stuff has a unique look to it, which looks kind of looks industrial and cool, but different. Was that did was that a happy accident, or did you work really hard at, at the look? Uh, no, uh, I have OCD when it comes to that kind of stuff. I actually <laughs> went to college for uh, art and industrial design engineering. Wow, there you and that's uh, you know all through my younger years, I drew. I was always uh, you know really into art, and I'm obsessed with cars and intricate engineering, like watches. I absolutely love and architecture. And uh, the very mechanical and industrial side of things that we've really adopted over the past few years um, is something I've always wanted to do. It's something I've always wanted to see. Uh, it's ever evolving, on, unfortunately. And, you know, I know some of my guys here, they try to get me to tell me just like, stop designing, just let's leave it as it is. But yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. it's, uh, I guess I have ADD when it comes to that aspect of it. But um, no, I'm, I mean, as far as the aesthetics, I'm a firm believer that somebody buys a guitar for a reason, not just the way it sounds, because of the way it looks. They want yeah, it to they look do. incredible. Yeah, uh, and I was always of the mindset, why not speaker cabs? Why not the amplifier themselves? And uh, early on, uh, we adopted a very custom shop uh, motto with our products. And it was amazing, but it also was kind of a nightmare because it was pretty much anything goes. Yeah. And uh, yep. we had to, we've been slowly cutting the options down and basically saying, this is what we offer. Um, just because. It's hard, man. Oh, yeah. It's, and I apologize to anybody out there that it took longer for your custom stuff. <laughs> That's the issue. When you're doing things that are the same uh, nonstop, it's a lot easier to get things done faster. We oh, have to yeah. constantly change things over, uh, change paint or change color especially when we used to do everything that was stain. Uh, we used to, we had to get the highest grade plywood and verify that every piece was perfect. And then the staining process was uh, kind of different, but as of the past couple of years, moving over to Tolex and then uh, standardizing the aesthetics. And uh, it, I think it's really finally given us the uh, kind of given us our image. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard thing, isn't it? Because the, um, you want to, I mean, from a supply chain perspective, you want to have everything that you need kind of handy and in stock. So therefore, you know, pre-ordered yeah. and the more you standardize, the more you can buy in bulk. So exactly, um, it's, yeah, it's a no brainer to kind of end up there. Um, so from an amp perspective, um, 
the Granifier was the was the first. So yeah. the Granifier was actually the first design that Eric and I did. Um, Eric Hockenberry is actually our lead amplifier engineer. Uh, he's been with us since like 2014 or 15. So All the right. Granifier was our first design. Uh, the Obsidian came about because we were like, well, this this Granifier is only a single channel. Nobody wants a single channel amp. Everybody wants multiple channels. So that's where we actually released the Obsidian first. Um, the designs actually aren't drastically different. They do have some major differences after the tone stack and then into the power supply, into the phase inverter, into the uh, transformers, et cetera. And the fact that the Obsidian is PCB versus Granifier hand-wired at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Obsidian was the first one that we came out with in 2016. And then the Granifier uh, came out in 2017 after I did a post on Facebook and asked if people would want a single channel. And the uh, <laughs> it was kind of overwhelming. So we were like, all right, let's do people it. People do, right? I mean, this yeah. is the thing. Yeah, they do. Um, yeah, I mean, it gives me it gives me inspiration for when I think about what I want to do in 2024 and so on. Like, I, I you know, like I started with the most complex amp I could I was just going to say, you, start, you started off a little, uh, a little complicated there with the Alta. So many switches, <laughs> so many knobs. <laughs> well, it's, it's three, it's only a three. I mean, there are four channel amps out there. It's only three channels. Oh no, yeah. I know that. I know yeah. there's more switches, Kyle. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Um, no, but, uh, it's kind of, and that kind of leads into the, the ideology that we have in, in regards to our amps that we prefer a little bit more simple and there's, there's no right answer, you know, having insane versatility is amazing, but we've always been a little bit more of, you know, a simple style, just dial <clears> your <throat> tone in there. There you go. Um, and you know, Ed Van Halen, he only ever used one channel, oh, dude. the volume back. This is it, man. So. <laughs> how good and how good. Right, I've been listening to that. You know, there's that stuff that's come out of with all that kind of isolated tracks and outtakes and all the rest of it. I was literally in the workshop yesterday with just that on in the background, and this is just like, you know, it's still for me anyway the tone, right? That is, yeah. I mean, it's playing helps, right? <laughs> but, um, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's playing, definitely it's still, helps. It's still amazing. So, like the the you said that you know, kind of, I guess, voicely or tonally, the Obsidian and the Granifier have have some shared DNA or similar. What? Yeah. What's the kind of yeah, inspiration I mean, behind that? Like where if you think about, you know, the kind of tones you were going for, the things that, you know, when you think of, everyone's got this sound in their head that they're seeking to yeah. reproduce. What, what's yours? What's, what is so, that tone? Honestly, both amps start off with a Soldano SLO as a basis. So the 39K cold clipper, you know, that kind of setup. Okay. Yeah. yeah cool. um, and essentially what we were going for is when we started doing the amps, from being a, a guitar tech and touring two of the most popular amps that people toured with in the genres of music that I was in, excuse me, were the 5150 and the dual rec, both of right. which are heavily based on an SLO. hundred percent. And we wanted something that was kind of in between, <clears throat> but also wanted a little bit more string definition uh, than either of those provided and kind of, we kind of evolved. We kept on thinking, okay, well, let's try this. Let's get a little bit more Marshall DNA. Uh, you know, let's try a little bit of this. So, um, the Granifier especially is a total mutt. Uh, it's got some weird stuff going on and, um, it's kind of a, a very unique thing. Uh, it's, it's versatile, uh, in what it can do, 
but it has its voice. It stays its voice all the time. So yeah, the inspirations honestly were uh, kind of a modern tight sound, not overly tight, not overly bright, not overly fizzy. And something I kind of gave the clarity, uh, you know, along the lines of like VHTs and Fryettes, they have a yep. lot of string yep. definition and we definitely wanted that. So <clears throat> um, those were kind of the inspirations. And that that's, that's super important for anything that's tuned down low too, right? Because you start to lose the, very easy to lose the note definition in a, in a, in a detuned guitar. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, we also, you know, when it comes to definition, it, it depends on the person that's playing. It depends on the tuning. It depends on the guitar. But some setups like a more compressed amp, some setups like a little bit more open amp, uh, some like more dry, some like more saturated. And we tried to find kind of a middle ground. I think we did a pretty good job at it uh, where you can still use an overdrive with the amps and it doesn't get so overly compressed and saturated. But for some players that have a very tight right hand and if they have the right guitar and pickup setup, that they don't need an overdrive. You know, that's yeah. all subjective though as well. Yep. Yep. And I, I will ask you about about how Mick has has them set up, right? When we get to when yeah. we get to that part of the chat, because I'm yep. Um yeah, that'd be that'd be cool to kind of go down that rabbit hole. Um, man, before we came on, we were talking a little bit about about business, and you were saying you were super busy, right? Which is which yeah. is awesome. Um, I'm keen to get your thoughts on the whole kind of direct sales model versus retail, and that's a that's a question yeah. that I'm asking kind of selfishly as well, right? Because I'm uh, I'm yeah. navigating that myself, and so how have you kind of like you found pros and cons of the different those two models? And, can, yeah, there's, and can, you make them, can you make them coexist successfully? And that, that's actually what we're trying to do right now. So uh, we actually are, for the first time ever, actually doing a, we're distributing through a store, but it was a small batch uh, with Nick Yaffe from the Axe Palace. And uh, we're finishing up the batch right now. Uh, we're actually shipping amps out tomorrow and early next week. Um, over the years, we've had numerous people approach us, uh, numerous different small stores, uh, Guitar Center approached us uh, a couple of years back, um, and that was partly with Musician's Friend as well. And I, I think they had an, they thought that we were huge and much bigger than we are. Um, it's I see a necessity for it, but I also see downsides to it. There's yeah. there's really no right answer. Uh, going <clears throat> direct to the consumer allows the products to be really. The quality control can be, you know, outstanding. The price point can be a little bit better. And um, the interaction with the customer is there. So you have a better basis for relationship with the end user. Uh, the downfall is, is when you're only selling direct, you don't have an outlet for people to go try your stuff out. Yeah, yeah. You also don't have an outlet for selling huge orders to, um, which, you know, sometimes is really big orders can help really fund the next project or fund your business to get to the next level. So um, it's, I think it's a good thing, but I think it's a bad thing. I think it's a balance of finding uh, smaller mom and pop shops that understand that margins are going to be a little bit smaller than say something from Marshall or Vox or anything that's made overseas. Uh, And, and, you know, you know, have that, item because it's kind of specialized because it's boutique be kind of a showcase product in their store gets people in there because they can't play it anywhere else and um use that as a basis for marketing so 
I, like I said, I, I think I see benefits and downsides to it. And uh, this is our first foray into it and we'll see how it goes. And do you think, do you think you can sustain both like a, a direct model and a retail model? I think you can, but the way, the only way that we're going to do it is kind of a direction that I discussed with Nick, where instead of offering the exact same product for both avenues, because then you're going to have competition, you know, it's why is somebody going to buy from this shop when they can buy direct through us and, uh, or vice versa, if it's the exact same product. So what we're doing is uh, with Nick, his were specialized. They have two additional features that the uh, standard production Granifier does not have. Uh, one being a three-way voice switch and then a uh, different bright switch for the uh, game controller. So plus a very unique colorway. His is uh, black with purple accents, purple font and everything. So uh, an ash front panel, it's, it's pretty cool. So the way that I actually be able to see it working is exactly that. Having specialized items that are exclusive to those stores, whether it be a unique amplifier or cab design, <clears throat> unique yep. speaker, or something that was, you know, aesthetically different. And there's a lot of companies that actually do that, especially with guitars. But uh, that's yeah. the way that we actually see it being able to be uh, kind of a viable option that works. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I've asked this, I've asked that question to and a bunch of different people, including more kind of, you know, higher volume, almost consumer-based products as as well as much more kind of boutique stuff like like, like what we're doing. And it's interesting because the answer is the answer is not always the same, right? And so no. some of the advice I've had is much more around like, yeah, you can have you can keep it consistent and have the same product line as long as there's a there's an agreement between your direct channel and any retail store that it's the same to the dollar. You can't oh yeah, any- it has to be the same price, hundred percent. There's no yeah. the this retail stores or the uh, whatever stores, whether it be online or a brick and mortar, they can't discount. Everything has to be the same price lock, just like what uh, Mesa Boogie used to do. They used to price lock everything, so there's no competition between stores. There'd yeah. be no competition between the manufacturer and the uh, the distributor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But definitely, the I think there's value in what you described, though, which is that having something that is only available in a particular store, yeah, or or it's only available maybe in on the direct channel, whereas the stores yeah. have the the standard product, right? So it's something I need to uh, I need to pursue further. I do have I do have amps in stores here in Australia, mm-hmm. um, and not because uh, not. Look, it's not because I'm expecting to sell many through retail. It's more that you need to have a place, as you said, right, where people can go and try it. Exactly. Um, but I don't have anything in a store in the states yet, and I'm starting yeah. to get I'm starting to get a lot, lot and, of requests for it. And honestly, one other thing that we've been thinking of was instead of having, uh, you know, the stores is you know numerous products in there and, and numerous batches. Uh, we've had some stores reach out to us and essentially almost in a consignment way where they want to have an amp in house. Yeah. Yeah. And we send the product direct to the customer. They can actually order through us with custom options, et cetera. It's just a hub where they can play it. They get incentive. They never have to actually put any money down. They just basically get an incentive, get a percentage uh-huh. by having somebody come in and order through the store because they tried it, they like it, et cetera. So I don't know how it's going to work. It's it's it's. That sounds cool. So that's almost a like a 
that's like a referral fee, so so to speak, yeah, rather pretty than, much. Yeah. So the, the the guy that goes in and plays that amp doesn't take it home. It's um, it's a it's a it's a demo amp if you like, and then exactly. if they want to go ahead, they order directly from you. Yeah, that's cool. Correct. Yeah. It's yeah. um, it's it's a it's a model that I could see working, but we really really have to. We're we're trying to focus on getting lead times down considerably, and uh, I'm sure you know how it is. There's you know, even though. COVID 2020 is gone. There's still issues with getting some components. Uh, some components have been discontinued. So we have to try out new components, uh, you know, uh, circuit modifications, et cetera, to make sure that everything sounds the way we want it to. And most companies from transformers to chassis to even the uh, plywood for the head shells, the prices have gone through the roof and the timing for getting anything is way longer than it used to be. Yeah. It's no longer, mm -hmm. you know, four weeks to get an order of 50 sets of transformers. It's now, you know, 12 to 16 weeks. And sometimes, you know, a lot of things happen and, and it's easy for things to get behind. So once we actually start catching up on orders, which uh, we plan to do next year, uh, that is something that we, we do want to kind of try out and I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> could be a total failure i don't know yeah no no it's interesting and i've had i mean i've got a i've actually got uh charles cilia who's a, a boutique guitar builder up in sydney um has an amp has an alto up there in his studio for that for that purpose basically it's a oh nice it's not an amp that someone would necessarily buy but he gets a lot of pro players through that facility and it's like a yeah, it's there for demonstration purposes, and if anyone wanted to kind of check it out, they could do that, and then would order directly from me. So, um, but we'll see how yeah, that luckily, goes. We have uh, quite a few amps and studios, and uh, you know a lot of people that play them touring. So that's definitely helped. And yeah. Our, plus our our plugin has definitely helped as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to yeah. ask you about that next. I'm just going to go to this. We've got a super chat, which is where. Uh -huh. Someone's throwing throwing us five dollars to get a question answered, which I appreciate because it helps pay for the streamyard <laughs> bill. Um, so I'm yes, going to go to this man and then, and then we'll <laughs> come back. We'll come back to the discussion about the neural DSP thing. Yeah. So Mister Mister Woodchuck for five dollars, thank you, brother. Says, "Hey Mike, big fan of Amiga. Just ordered one of your four x twelve cabs this week with V30s DV77. Thank you so Do much." Do you have any plans to create IRs from your cabs? We actually do. And I want to apologize to everybody because we've been saying that they were going to be coming for quite a while now. And we actually have our setup that we've, we've tested so many different, we've tested different interfaces. Uh, our ISO booth has changed numerous times. We've changed, we've tried so many different preamps and EQs and ways of doing it. And we have the method down. We are really happy with the way they sound and other people are very happy with the way they sound. We will be releasing them very soon. It's going to be at the beginning of the year. So, you know, uh, we're going to be putting a lot of information up. Um, so, yes, beginning of the year, promise, promise, promise. <laughs> well, uh, you heard it here first, guys. So that's cool. Hey, man. So that's a really, that's a really good segue into the whole kind of digital realm. And yep. um, I got a few questions about this, man, if you don't mind. One is the whole, let's start with the neural DSP thing. Yeah, um, who are clearly a company that's smashing it in that in that world. Yes, and I've got, very much so. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of what they're doing. Um, got a quad cortex down on the ground right there. Yeah. Um, so how did that come about, and how's it has it has it assisted amp sales, or do you think it's got on the way of amp sales? So um, 
No, it's it's so the way it came about is we met the guys when we were at Nam in twenty. I think it was 2017 or 2018 and they were just announcing the different stuff with uh with Fortin and just kind of we were yeah. just intrigued by it yeah and uh they came over and they were playing the amp and they were loving it and we were you know little tiny company and we were excited that we had the line out of our booth that it did and uh they approached us and said hey you know you want to do a plug-in and i was like <laughs> how much do i have to pay first and basically it was just essentially we we got to talking and i said absolutely i think it would be an amazing idea uh we didn't know how it, well it would do and uh it was released 2019 i think yep. okay. uh 2019 yeah valentine's day or 2020 i can't remember um and it was, uh, it's been a huge success for us, honestly. I think it's been a success because it's given people, uh, especially from other countries or people that don't have the money to buy a, a high dollar uh, boutique product, the ability to actually play the amps. And um, I definitely think it's helped sales out quite a bit too, because again, it's kind of like a, uh, it's a, tr it's a trial for people that are be like, Oh, okay, yeah. this is what the amp sounds like. Yeah. Um, the guys from neural are amazing at what they do. Um, is the amp ex is the plugin exactly what the amp sounds like? I think there's some differences. Um, the amp, the actual amp is a little bit tighter than what the plugin is, but there's a lot of aspects that go in, you know, we're involved with that. Um, uh, so do they model, do they model it based on, the amp like as in do they receive oh, yeah. an amp or do they look at they, the schematic? yeah so we have like, we sent them an amp they yeah they need the schematic they deconstruct it they do doing wow. they're doing measurements everywhere yeah. um there are some other companies that just do impulses or that do similar things to captures like a tone uh, match kind of thing or whatever yeah but, kind of yeah. yeah and i'm not taking anything away from those companies but a lot of times those never actually really get the same character as the real amplifier does and I think, uh, you know, some of these new companies in Ireland, some of these other companies are the science behind it. Just it's, it's a little too much for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, of a computer it's, guy. It's truly, it's truly modeling, isn't it? Because the, yes. I assume what they're doing is, um, you know, that they're, they're creating a digital model of each, uh, stage if you like yeah absolutely and and, and interstage networks as well right yeah. of your of your amplifier it's some um, yeah it's i mean it's a science on its own right that yeah and uh when they sent us the uh the initial beta testing what i was most surprised about was the actual response because it felt more like an amp than uh other plugins that i had played and and other you know digital uh products that i played it just it kind of had a touch response that just felt a little bit more natural i think that um yeah look i i on the whole kind of sales part of it like i think you know if you if you didn't think too deeply about it you might say oh you know it 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 probably stopped people buying amps i don't think it i don't i mean i agree with you i don't think it would i think that the person that is only going to buy the plug-in and nothing else then that's fine 100 percent at least at least now that's available right so yeah they can get an ex they can get the experience without having to outlay you know uh, or maybe yeah, they just their situation money. yeah maybe their situation doesn't facilitate a full you know they don't have the room or the whatever where they are in their yeah. stage of their life you know and i um, think 
you're very right with that. And the fact that, you know, there are people that prefer to have both, especially studio guys, especially touring musicians, especially people that just play local, you know, shows and they don't want to use digital rigs. A lot of the time people are using the plugins for recording and then they're using a real amp for live yeah. use or vice, yep. you know, you can do either, you can do vice versa. Um, I don't really think it's taken away from sales and, uh, you know, I think it's done nothing but actually kind of help us out. Cause like I said, there's people in other countries that, you know, buy our plugin. We get to see, you know, we have an idea of all the different locations, especially with people that tag us on social media. And it's insane how many people from uh, Asia or South America, uh, numerous people in Central Africa and South Africa. Well, South Africa is a little bit more, uh, you know, populated, but there's so many different places that we see people tagging us. And it's like, it's amazing that people around the world know who we are when we're, we're a tiny company, <laughs> tiny. So uh, it's, it's, it's humbling. And, and we're, we're very grateful for, uh, to being able to give them that opportunity. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And you know, that you remind me of something that was talked about when, um, when Kyle Rose was on the stream here a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we talked about, and I know, you know, Kyle well, right. And we talked oh, a bit yeah. about, yeah, we talked a bit about how in this, in this domain, it's a very emotional buy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like we're, we're in a, we're in a world where the, you know, the people that are buying our products, they care deeply about this stuff. It's not they're not we're not just selling consumables or whatever right you know what i mean like it's a very kind of it's a very passionate emotional buy and the reason that we kind of had a bit of discussion about that is because we were talking about it's a bit of a emotional sell as well right because you put your heart and soul into your products yes and we were talking a bit about that kind of feeling you get when you see one of your amps up for sale second hand yeah. Like, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> what? What if you know? Yeah. It's um. Uh, it's a very emotional kind of you know. Yeah, it's, it's an like emotional why? market. Um, yeah. It's yeah. I've had to kind of separate myself from that, but and you know I'm sure some people are on it from these groups, but there's some Facebook groups that yeah is, yeah yeah you know the it's people love to buy and sell. There's there's yes. a you know you kind of get a high when you're spending that kind of money and it's a new thing, regardless if somebody loves it or they hate it. Uh, you know, there's some people that love that ever revolving door of just trying new things out. And I've come, you know, I'm okay with it at this point because it's going to go into the hands of somebody else. And if it takes two hands before somebody, you know, plays it and they're like, Oh my God, this is my forever amp. I'm okay with that. Uh, it does. It did at first seem like, you know, you know, somebody was uh letting you know taking your child and be like yeah we're gonna give it to somebody else it's like, you know? it's like someone says something bad about one of your kids or something you know like what exactly so um no but it's 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 just it's inevitable i mean you know people can say that it's the best piece of gear they've ever played no matter what it is from pickups to guitar to pedals to amps cabs or whatever and people's you know tastes change over time or they may find something that actually works better for them so um we never pretend that what we build is the end all be all best thing ever. Cause there is no best our, yeah. I've said it before, yeah. our products are no better than a crate GX 15, you know, little practice amp. It's all subjective. It's all what people want to hear. You, you did write about the forever amp thing. Right. And I've, 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 you know, I've noticed that not just with my stuff, but you know, like any, anything in the, 
let's call it the kind of more boutique world, that they do that stuff, particularly if it's kind of pricey, you know, more at the kind of boutique end of the market, that um, it, is a, it is a big investment for some people to hold on to. Yeah. And but they want to have their experience with it and then and then it'll it'll move on and i think at the end of the day it it's it's all good right because it means there's more people have had the experience and if the amps yeah if the amps good or the guitar's good or whatever it is that you're selling then um that reputation will just build that you know people have tried it and they liked it they just yeah. happen to move it on that's all you know it's not the end of the world yeah i mean there definitely are some people that have take advantage of the situation for lead times and sold the amps for five, six, $700, oh, yeah. even a thousand dollars more than what they cost new. We don't condone that at all. Uh, I don't really, I don't really care for that, but you know, I understand uh, supply and demand. So. Yeah, there's, there's definitely that, that happens. Um, can can we talk a bit about, can we talk a bit about the, the association with Mick, right. And how that, yeah. how that happened, right. And that kind of that whole, that whole world of, um, of Slipknot, which I, I said you know earlier <laughs> that I had a very, a very fleeting experience with, um, you know when you when yourself and Bob hosted me there for a couple of days, which was awesome. How did yeah. the, how did the thing happen with Mick? How did you meet him? So, um, I had been guitar teching for numerous bands over the years, and I had, you know, taken numerous time off, and I kind of pick and chose my gigs over the years. And, uh, a, a, mutual or a friend of mine, um, had his, his wife is, uh, Mick's wife's twin sister. Oh, and, wow. uh, between that and then V-Man who I had known V-Man beforehand, V-Man's the bass player for people that don't know. Um, I'd known him beforehand. Uh, he had bought a couple of one by 12 cabs from us and loved him and told Mick about him. And between those two things, uh, I got to meet Mick in person. We hit it off pretty well. Talked super nerdy gear stuff for hours, made everybody on the bus really bored and annoyed. And um, <laughs> we started a relationship and then he ordered some stuff from us, uh, some cabs uh, to one by 12s. And because he wanted to kind of like a small, just home uh, practice rig and absolutely fell in love with them. And, uh, basically we got to talking a lot about different things about gear and I knew that they were going to be coming up and torn again. And he knew that I was a guitar tech and he said, basically asked me if I wanted to come out with him. Wow. So, and what, how long ago was that? That like was, that was 2018. So 2018, uh, it actually, it really was more so, uh, going into the studio. So, um, okay. Mid 2018 is when we kind of discussed it and we finalized the details of me being his tech and going to the studio and stuff. And uh, I think it was uh, either September or October of 2018 when I went out to the studio when they were recording uh, We Are Not Your Kind. So that was kind of my uh, beginning with them. So it was met in 2016 or 2017 and then started working and uh, together in 2018. Where did they, where did they record that? East West. East West is insane. So long story with that one. That place is pretty awesome. Go it's for been it. a brothel. It's been a, an underground casino. It's been wow. a, a grocery store. It was owned by the manager of um, uh, Frank Sinatra for a while. It's where Michael Jackson recorded Thriller. 
uh, wow. Rolling Stones, Vivid, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Green Day. I mean, you name it. Everybody's pretty much been there. It's uh, a magical place. Absolutely amazing. And the people that work there are freaking awesome, too. This is, that's amazing, man. Um, yeah. What when when you started working with Mick? What what was in his rig at the time? What was he playing amp, amp wise? So right when, well, I mean, actually, uh, before he was with us, he was playing uh, Rivera four by twelves and uh, the Mesa JP two C. Okay. And uh, he he had started the JP two C because he had his signature amp through Rivera the uh, KR7. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yep. uh, he switched over to the Mesa in 20... Oh, man. I, I'm, I'm not going to really say definitively, but it was like 2015, I believe, 2016. Could have been later than that. Um, but when I first started working with Mick, I brought along the Obsidian because a lot of people know, a lot of people don't know, the Obsidian is actually his unofficial signature amp because when... I sent a uh, prototype amp to him, what became the Granifier. Uh, he gave us pointers on like, oh, it'd be awesome if you had this. It'd be really cool if you had this. You definitely need to have MIDI. You should have multiple channels. And a lot of his ideas actually came to be in the Obsidian. And uh, that's as soon as we started working together, when I went to the studio, he brought along the number one Obsidian that we built. That is the prototype and the number one uh, granifier, which at the time was called the Iridium that he owns as well. And that's what he tracked the uh, We Are Not Your Kind with as well as um, the last album. So That's cool. So that the, when, I, um, uh, when I went backstage with you earlier mm -hmm. in the year, there were two obsidians in mix racks. Yes. Yeah. Now, so they've been in there since since that time, pretty much. The yes. same amps, same amps, and even the same tubes. They test fine. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> um, man, you actually—I um, haven't told many people this, but you, you you gave me an opportunity to actually play through it. Yeah. Um, when I was there, so you just handed me one of his guitars, and I it was it was a it was an incredible experience. The thing that I remember about it was that it was it was loud. <laughs> right, so they were playing like it was in a, the four, the cabinet was in an ISO box, right, or whatever. Uh, no, when you came out, that cab was actually just actually in the set cart. We had taken oh, okay. them out of the ISO cabs, um, because they were a little too small for them. Because a four by twelve in an ISO cab, that's a big ice. That's a big, you know, road yeah, case. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we had actually set them out in the uh, set cart, and it was just open facing to the front of the stage, which the guys can't hear when they're playing live, but it's, it's, it gets pretty loud backstage. Well, cause there was another band while we were there just hanging out backstage. There was a, it's cause it was a festival set up guys, right? So yeah. it's just band after band after band and Slipknot were headlining. Um, there was another band on the stage in front. I can't remember who it was. It was probably two or three bands before Slipknot came on. Um, and then we were playing and obviously, I mean, the, the onstage, sound or you know levels from that band were loud enough that they couldn't hear what we were doing but yeah. i could hear i could hear and feel it actually because the cab was pretty close to your your station right i mean it was yeah. just kind of right there um so i remember that and i remember it being quite loud and i could kind of almost well i could basically feel it um but it just felt it felt so nice to play 
It's the immediate, the immediate kind of feeling that I got, you know, from this, like it was, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a chore or, or challenging. <laughs> it, it felt quite of, kind of a bit greasy and, but in a good way, I don't mean like, you know, it was super. I, I know your term for greasy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, and, and I mean, it was, it, you know, and you'd set up those guitar with the guitar that you handed me was, a. Uh, it was a Jackson, I think. At that yeah, it would have been a Jackson at the time with his uh, prototype Fishman's. And I think, it, I can't remember if it was the green guitar or if it was one of the red or it's black. kind of a bluey ones. one. Does that I ring a bell? Yeah, that would have, been, it would, have, it would have been uh, green. It was a uh, Philadelphia okay. Eagles green. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe it was. I can't remember. Because um, it was kind of like there was so much going on. I was <laughs> trying, to, yeah. trying to take a look at the same time. Um, so what else is in the in-mix kind of basic setup? Because um, so, you did take me through the rig, but I can't kind of remember what the ins and outs of it. It seems like it's a crazy complex rig. And to anybody that's not used to, you know, touring rigs uh, that are, you know, all analog, it is kind of crazy. So we have two obsidians. There's just one as a backup just in case. Luckily, we've never needed it. Uh, there is a um, KHE switcher that goes between the two or radial radials in one of the rigs because we have two identical rigs. So uh, signal chain is pretty easy. It's guitar into sure accent wireless into uh, the um, Peterson rack strobe tuner into a JX44. The JX44 is a distribution setup. So we can actually switch between different wireless packs because the uh, wireless system that we're using is a four channel. So the JX44 allows you to switch between different outputs if you want to and different inputs. Uh, from there, do you have, uh, would you have packs? Do you have like wireless packs on many guitars? Every guitar, yeah. Every so guitar. every guitar has its own wireless pack, and we have four channels total. So some of them share, but we just have to make sure that you know everyone you know everyone has a pack. Um, from there, goes on to a um, Dunlop Crybaby rack wall from their custom shop. Then it goes into a rate, uh, the uh, RJM uh, amp gizmo and, or effects gizmo, I'm sorry, which uh, we have two rack drawers full of effects and we have their mastermind GT 24, which is that giant space station MIDI board that you saw. Um, I actually do all of the patch changes for Mick. Yeah. So it's switching um, all the effects in and out. I remember you, you showed me Jim's rig at the time. He had the same, Yep. The, the same controller, right? The same yep. GT, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. They are jam G uh, mastermind GT 24. Yeah. 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 So, uh, from there we have, uh, some different fuzz pedals, some different, uh, uh, basically effects pedals, his trusty boss GX 700 rack units that are the only way that we can achieve the sounds from the first album for surfacing eyeless, uh, spit it out. Um, and many others. Uh, it's a crazy old mid eighties, terrible thing that <laughs> is finicky. And then basically goes to the, uh, to the obsidian. The only thing going in the effects loop of the obsidian right now is just a, uh, reverb and delay pedal, uh, for if we play snuff, but, uh, everything else goes in the front, including the GX 700. And for some patches that we're using on the GX 700 for spit it out, uh, prosthetics and surfacing, uh, it basically goes over to the clean channel and adds the GX 700s 
amp distortion, like a 5150 or just like a, a boss turbo distortion sound because they're terrible. It sounds awful in a, in a great way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to, I was going to yeah. ask you that. So you, you've got to like, when you're starting to put stuff in front of the amp, you will actually channel switch to yeah, the so, clean on the obsidian at the same time. Well, since the obsidian is MIDI controlled and we <clears> have everything on a distribution network from a MIDI solutions T8, uh, I can hit one patch and it changes the channel of the amp and turns on the effect or goes to the correct patch on the GX 700 for that desired effect. And in some cases turns on pedals or uh, the effects loop it all just with one punch. That's super cool. And in terms of feeding in front of house, is that, is, are we, are you miking that cab that's there or is it yeah. you going through, there's no IRs and no. all that kind of uh, stuff? So we're, we're going to be introducing IRs in the future. Um, again, we did it for a while. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's live. So we're using our, the Omega four by 12 loaded with all DV 77s and are mic'd up currently with a, uh, biodynamic uh, bio 201, which has been a mainstay. Those mics are insane. If you don't have one, get one. It's like everything okay. that you want an SM 57 to be while still having, you know, a different voice. Uh, that we usually have a ribbon, uh, something like an SE VR two or a biodynamic M160, uh, or and then we usually have a condenser like a KM184 or the SE RN17, etc. So we usually have three mics going to a Bob. So yeah, yeah, that, that's that's cool. I'm gonna I've got a super chat here. I'm gonna go to and then we'll yeah. come back. So I've got I've got a few more things to ask you about with um with mix with mix setup. Uh, Tim Connors. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it, man. My granophile will surely not be up for sale secondhand. So Thanks, that's Tim. cool. <laughs> yeah, great amp. Uh, Tim goes on to say, Jason, I want one of your evil Joe amps. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still building them occasionally. Uh, can or is Shay going to make these for the US guys? Yeah, so um, or are we paying 1K in freight? Okay, so... Um, Shay's not building for me anymore from from scratch. So we did that first run of Alters back. Well, this time last year it was. Um, but we've got it. So we've got a new kind of setup going where I'm actually building um, the amps all the way up to a working amplifier. But then I just ship Shay uh, the working chassis. So I pull the tubes out and ship just the chassis, which kind of minimizes the you know the shipping cost. And Shay will then tube check bias and mount in my US made head cabs, which are stored at his at his shop. Uh, I ju actually just shipped an amp, a custom built amp to a guy in California. It was picked up three hours ago, and I'm telling you, it's not one k in freight. Like it's nothing like that. It's actually not. I've got a really fantastic deal in place with FedEx because I. I bring in and ship to the States so much that they've managed to kind of set me up with a pretty, pretty fantastic rates, which obviously I can pass on. Um, it's not that much more than domestic shipping in the US. You'd be surprised. So um, just email me, man, and we'll, we can figure something out. You, you, you won't be paying 1K in freight, I tell you that. Uh, okay. My next question... Um, just a little bit about about the job of being a tech man in that in that mm -hmm. world, right? What's the what's the single most important priority 
either kind of let's talk about it in terms of like before the show and then during the show. What's the number one thing that you're concerned about? Before the show, make sure you don't have to go number two. Before the show, uh, really making sure that all the guitars are ready, which sometimes can be pretty difficult, especially like we just did Mexico City and it was yeah. 74 yeah. degrees during the day. And then during showtime, it was down in the 40s. So guitars don't like that change, especially when they're sitting outside the whole time. Uh, verifying that everything is in tune, verifying that the intonation is good, the action is good, et cetera. Um, and then uh, before the show, also making sure that the rig is working flawlessly. And that being said, Bob is probably laughing right now because right when uh, Mick was backstage, when they were about to go on, he had his guitar in his hand and he was just strumming. And I said, go ahead and tune again since you've been strumming. My entire rig shut down. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. No way. Freaky, a little bit of freaky situation. So luckily, uh, myself, Brad, uh, Jim's tech and uh, Dublin were able to get it back up and running, but it shut off immediately again, kept on shutting off. And that was basically the distro power. So uh, long story short, making just sure that everything actually works properly, making sure that all the pedals are plugged in properly, that all the power supplies are nice and sturdy that the MIDI pedal is on, et cetera. Just, uh, I have a full checklist that I do that I used to have written down in front of me, but now I do, you know, mentally. So there's how, quite how a few hours? things that have to be done. Oh, I can imagine. How many hours before the show would you typically have to kind of, once everything's kind of set up, you know, mm -hmm. and you've actually now got the opportunity to kind of start doing some of those, getting the guitars prepared, making sure the rig, you know, as you say, right, is all kind of bulletproof. How much time do you have normally between when the show? A good amount of time, a decent amount of time actually. So especially like headlining gigs and most festivals, um, our production team gets us loaded up on stage and very early. You know, uh, you know, late morning most of the time, early afternoon. Wow. Since we headline and we usually don't go on until the earliest that we usually go on would be like eight fifty or nine o'clock. We usually start setting up, let's just say we set up at noon. Uh, the backline team usually can get everything going, ready to sound check within less than a half an hour, 15 minutes. Um, right after the sound check is when we start, you know, really working on the guitars, getting them all set up, you know, doing all the string changes because we do string changes every single day. On um, every guitar. Every single guitar, yeah. I have a little bit easier than Jim, than uh, Brad does. Jim has a lot more guitars on stage. I, know, I didn't notice that. <laughs> Jim's got like yeah, so many. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we have a, we have a good amount of time to do it. We actually, you know, we're pretty we're pretty fortunate that we have time to go eat. We have time to kind of joke around a little bit. But you know, we all really make sure that we get our work done. Uh, so. Usually it takes me about four hours for everything that's doing every single guitar, checking all the battery packs, uh, making sure the wah pedals, you know, are good, et cetera. So it's usually about four okay. hours. Yeah. Okay. And, and then when, when the guys hit, hit the, you know, the show starts, right. And you're into it. I can imagine that, that, you know, an hour and a half or hour 45, whatever it is, just goes in the blink of an eye. But what are you, what's your main concern when the guys are actually playing? So, just like I have on right near, uh, right here, we uh, we wear in ears, so we get to hear, you know, a different mix. 
uh, you know, we're not just trying to listen to the PA or anything from a distance. So what I'm focused on is making sure that the rig is working, making sure that everything is good, making sure there's no dropouts. And uh, we have uh, basically, I, I think you saw them. We have TV, uh, we have monitors right in front of our rigs because yeah. we can't, we're behind the stage. We can't see beyond that gigantic stage plot. Um, so we're watching behind the stage and just making sure that everything is good. Uh, if, if I see mix signal and go like this, uh, you know, for he points his guitars or something, I'll call over on a, uh, a talk back mic to our monitor engineer, Danny and say, Hey, you know, turn Mick down or turn him up or something else. Um, basically just really listening to make sure that the show is going smoothly for, for the person that I work for. Can he, can Mick communicate directly with you through a, can he, no, Mick, we like, used to have a mic on, on his side underneath uh, the tower that clown stands on the percussion tower, but he yeah. never really used it. He would just come back and say something. Jim, right. on the other hand, Jim has a mic. We call it the Jim joke, mic. He, like, <laughs> he likes to talk and tell jokes during the show. It's a good time, <laughs> but um, they can't hear us. Like uh, when he's talking into that, uh, he can't hear anybody. And the only way that the band can actually communicate with us and actually hear us is if they communicate directly in person. It's right. And so, so if, if Jim's at the mic there on the side of the stage, yeah. um, which sounds like he does quite frequently, yeah, that's, he does. <laughs> that's so awesome. That goes to the whole crew. Like that, like, it, it goes to, out, yes. You, like everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he has supreme so, power. Yeah. It's, it's uh it's a good time. He likes to talk about insurance or, uh, switching his phone plan or just telling weird random jokes or just saying weird things or making noises. It's a good time. <laughs> oh God. Um, I guess, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's cool, man. Hey, I've got a, we've got a couple more super chats here, so I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to hit these and then we'll, um, uh, we'll make our way some of the, through some of the questions that have already been posted as well. Uh, Ethan, thanks, Ethan. Man, I appreciate this. Um, hey, guys, loving this so far. Mike, how did you find out about Mix switch to ESP? Were you involved in helping him make the switch? And uh, also, do you know what model will be his signature and when can we get one? <laughs> so um, I'm not going to go into, yes, I knew about the switch. Um, I'm not going to really go into, uh, you know, much more on that just for, you know, to keep the peace with his, the previous company that he was with. Um, yes. Yeah. I knew about the switch. Uh, I've actually personally been a huge ESP uh, fan for years. I have numerous here at the shop and uh, it's been always my choice. And Mick actually has quite a few ESPs as well that he's got over the years. And he's, he's always been a big fan of the brand and um, the switch uh, over is, is beneficial. Uh, Jackson is still an amazing company, uh, but I definitely think, and he believes as well that ESP is a, a better fit for him. As far as signature model, uh, I'm working on the designs with Mick right now, and I can't tell you anything else about that. <laughs> and as far as when can you get one, keep in mind that once we have the prototype and once we have all the specifications finished, it's not something that can happen within like a couple of days. It's something that takes quite a long time because Mick will have a high-end signature, then he's also going to have an a LTD signature. The LTD signatures, they have to, you know, 
that's a much higher seller than the Japanese custom shop, whether it be an ESP original or an E2. So yep. uh, as far as a time frame, it's really hard to say. Um, I wouldn't be the one to discuss with that once the once it's all complete, once prototyping is done, ESP will be the one that actually starts to announce that stuff. Yeah, cool. Because man, that 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 whole thing happened just after you guys yeah, left we're, Australia. We're to Tokyo. Yeah. You went straight to Japan after the three shows here. Yeah. And yeah. It was in the works before that. A lot yeah. of people think, oh, you just went to Japan and switched over. <laughs> but uh yeah. It was uh it was in the works before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey man, I actually got while we're while we're talking about this, I've actually got some of this here. This is a product that you gave me. Oh yeah, Fred Butter. That actually, stuff is amazing. Big shout out to those guys. This, give it a go. Oh my god. So especially my- their uh their guitar cleaner and their maple butter and their rabbit fur. The rabbit fur is their microfiber cloth. Yeah, cool. Honestly, it's the only stuff I use now. It's absolutely it's, amazing. Because I remember playing that, you know, back to when you kind of handed the mix guitar to me and I kind of got got to play through the rig. I was just like, oh my God, this thing is amazing. And I said, I said to you, it's like, what you said, are these like stainless frets or what is it? It just they oh. felt incredible. And I remember you saying that. Yeah. And then you you can't buy this in Australia, but you can buy it in the US, obviously, and I so I managed to I, I ordered a whole a whole bunch, got it sent to Shay's house, and then he <laughs> put it in a box. I'll and just it to I'll me. head up I'll head up Jason from uh from them and tell him to to find a US or a uh, Australian distributor. Hundred yeah, percent, yeah, like yeah, um, uh, it's the it's the best kept secret in the industry, I think that stuff. Uh, David says David Sheldon Music, thank you. The super chat, not a question. Just oh, Dave Sheldon, you both miss you, Dave. I'll see you soon, buddy. I'll come up. I'll make it up there. Dave's a great guy. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's cool, man. So let me get to a few of these other questions, guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're kind of now into the Q and A part, kind of properly, right? So if anyone's got any questions they want to ask Mike, just jump them in the chat, and we will. Um, we will get to them. First off, there was a question here from Jared uh, about how to wire the heaters on 12AX7 with a 6.3 volt center tap transformer. And Alex, I think, has already answered that, right? So that is yep. that's the tr- that is just the standard traditional way of wiring heaters, um, Jared. So there's a couple of references. One of the things that I suggest you have a look at if you haven't already, if you go to the Valvestorm website, on the homepage, there's a link there, and it's called uh, SDM Amp Info, something like that. And it's a link to a Google Drive where there's some really fantastic um, layouts of all the old Marshall amps, and it will show you how all that stuff's wired up. Uh, Rob um, Robinette, that his website is also great uh, as well. Rob Robinette's website is incredible. Yes, I highly recommend anybody you know working on amps to go check that out. And if you don't already get the RCA uh, handbook, it's, <laughs> it's it's old, it's in depth, but pretty nuts. Yeah, well, I don't actually have that. I got I should get it. I've got the um, a couple of Merlin's books. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, uh, there's the preamp design one, but there's the power amp supplies one as well, which is um, a, a fascinating book. Um, and there's actually, there's actually a lot to, in there about about heater supplies and setup and so on. Um, ben says, 
Psychosocial is one of the greatest metal masterpieces recorded. Yeah, it's called Down and Drop A, isn't it? Uh, yes, that's Drop A. Yep. Yeah. Was an Omega amp used for mixed tone? Uh, no, that was that was well before we were with him. Uh, that album came out, I think, in 2009, maybe earlier than that. It was, it was early, uh, right? Like, yeah, that was earlier. That was uh, – God, I can't remember what year that was. No, at that point um, – that song would have been his Rivera KR7 with a lot of Marshall JC made hundred. He has a uh, a red uh, JC made hundred that is a God. I can't remember a nineteen eighty five or eighty four. Fifty or hundred. Hundred, and it is uh, something special. So that was two thousand eight. All hope is gone. Uh, yeah, that amp that JC made hundred that he has is definitely something I think- special. Man, I think I've seen photos of that amp. Would that be right? Like, uh, be... I think so. They had videos. Rivera posted a video of him playing uh, one of the songs from that album, and I think you can see it in the background. That'd so, be it. yeah, he's had that one, and that's that's one of those. I mean, you know how it is. Eight hundreds are some of them sound amazing. Yeah. Some of them are. Why does everybody like these? You know, and his <laughs> is one of his is one of the great ones. It's true, man. There is a there is a funny formula in there, right? Like, and um, I mean, I've built enough, uh, you know, amps based on that architecture now to kind of find my own formula for that I think sounds awesome with those with that circuit. But man, they are because I I have a bunch of them through here for you know either mod or restoration work, and some of them just sound incredible, and others are as you say, why do people like these amps, right? Yeah. It's- um, there's some that I'll keep my opinion to that I just do not like <laughs> some of the generations. But this is it. And uh the second part of Ben's question is regarding it's a little bit like our conversation about neural DSP. Uh, um line yeah, I, mean, I I wouldn't have a problem with it. Uh when companies do that, uh most of the time they're not actually labeled as the actual manufacturer's products. You'll see like yes, Mace yes, will yes. be a tread plate, uh uh, Friedman, I can't remember what it's called Freeman, Freeman or something like or that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, that really isn't something that I could contact them and, and choose. We, I have talked to somebody that is no longer at line six, they expressed interest and there's, uh, some other companies that really want to, uh, to add our stuff to the library, but that really isn't a decision for me. I think it would be awesome. Um, it, it would benefit us from a standpoint the same way as the the neural DSP plugin, where it gives people an opportunity to play our product if they can't either afford the real product or if they aren't able to, you know, to get their hands on one. Uh, but I think it would be cool if it'll happen. Not really sure. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that that whole thing about the um, not using the official name just says to me that. They've modeled the amp, but they haven't done it in consultation or in partnership no. with the. A lot of people have company. problems with it. Um, I, I see. I see. You know, it, I go both ways with that. Where yeah. I do see a problem with it because it is, it is an electrical property. Uh, regardless yeah. of if the circuit is based off of another amplifier, it is changing it enough to the point where it is a unique voicing. Um, but at the same time you are taking somebody else's circuit and modifying it. So my opinion on it is everything is, everything is based on everything. I mean, but there's value in the, there's, 
there's value in the brand, right? So, so circuit construction aside, um, someone who's taken a name like you know and called it Freeman rather than Friedman or whatever, yeah. they're they're attaching that thing to a trademark or a brand, and I think it's yeah. I mean, I think it's better. I don't know. It's probably better. It's cool to have your stuff modeled digitally and available, yeah. but it would be better if it was done officially, I would think, rather than... I do agree with that. The only downfall is if they do that, the end product is going to have to be considerably more expensive because they're going to have to pay license or an initial fee yeah. to the manufacturers. And uh, that's what a lot of people uh, don't realize is that while you know our products are based off of another man- somebody else's intellectual property, it's just like, uh, you know, making some kind of pie. Yeah, somebody else did it. I changed it in this way. If you try to sell this one, that is my exact rep, uh, you know, recipe with almost the exact same box, you're kind of stealing it from me. Um, so when it comes to, you know, if somebody had actually used the name, they would have to use, they would have to pay the person. And again, in turn, it would raise the price of the product and it would raise the price up to the point where like you wouldn't have all these different options. You wouldn't be able to have so many different products in that library. So, yeah. And I think Ben goes on to ask, and I think we've touched on this, Ben, which is I wonder if Mike sees digital platforms as a threat to tube amps um, or um, does he see digital modelers boosting tube amp sales? Both ways, honestly. Yeah. To be honest, everything in this world is is a gray area. There's no black or white. Uh, in some ways, I do see them as a threat, but I also see them as a pretty incredible piece of technology that I think needs to be embraced. Uh, I definitely think that tube amps and digital uh, run a parallel path. Yeah, There are people that are always going to be digital. There's people that are always going to be tube. There's going to be people that cross back and forth. And I'm totally okay with it. From a uh, perspective of listening to it from a live performance, um, there have been times that I'll 100% admit, I thought people were using real amps and they're actually using digital. Then there's other times that I've been like, <laughs> you could tell that it was not, uh, you know, it could not have been the more. sound guy's fault. You know, it could have been the the user fault <clears throat> of just dialing in wrong. Um, I don't think that they're a major threat because there's a romance to analog tube amplifiers. They deliver something that I don't think uh, digital would ever really be able to create. And that's not saying that digital doesn't sound good. It's because of the inefficiencies of a tube amp. I mean, you have essentially a 45 pound, uh, basically sucker of electricity that does nothing else other than convert it into heat and electrons. (laughs) Yeah. And pass an electrons there. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But there's a there's something really good about that. It, it, I kind of give people the same reference from, let's say, an old muscle car to an electric car. Electric yep. cars are going to be faster. They're going to be more efficient. They're going to be able to do the same thing, sometimes better than an old muscle car does. But muscle cars also give you kind of a different emotion. They give you a different feeling. It's a different again, romance. And I use that term because it is, you know, romance is, you know, it's, it's a huge thing. It's, it's a, it's a feel thing. And because every amp is different um, and, you know, even from the same brand, even the same model, every amp is different. Every bit of electricity is different. 
it is going to sound different at times, which is a bad thing because it can be more inconsistent than digital. But at the same time, that's all kind of the magic of it. As part of the, as part of the, it's all, it's, it's organic, right? Yes, hundred um, percent. It's part of the magic, and I think that, um, I mean, I'm a firm believer in a, a tube amp paired with a guitar. It, that is, it's one thing. So, yes. like, the amplifier is part of the instrument to me, and you know, I'm sure I'm not. I know I'm not alone here, and and with this point of view, right? Like. Um, it's something that a player will connect with and uh, they will play the amplifier as much as they play their guitar, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, super, super important. Speaking of, speaking of sound guy's fault, um, I'm going to bring up this. <laughs> this is uh, Bob. This is Bob Strakel. So Bob does front of house sound for Slipknot and Avenge Sevenfold and probably many others. And um, he actually texted me before we came on air and said, ask, Ask Mike about his white party pants. So, so I'm going to ask you about that, man. <laughs> I, uh, quite a few years ago, I can't remember when it started. Um, I had some white pants and I got really drunk and uh, it became, it started to become a thing where when I was going to party hard, I would start to wear some white pants. And I right. had the same ones for a long time. They got to see him uh, one time when we were in, it was actually my 40th birthday. We were in Copenhagen. So that was 2000, right before the pandemic and everything. And uh, we went out to a place called War Pigs, which is an incredible barbecue spot. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. After that, I was already pretty, uh, pretty gone. Not, you know, didn't really know exactly what was going on. <laughs> and I went back to the hotel, which is right next to a bar that uh, Bubs, who is V-Man's tech, somehow talked to this person and they let us have the bar all night. No charge. They left. It was just like, oh, here you go. What? Just lock up before you leave. Yeah. So I changed <laughs> into some white pants and uh, things got a little out of control. There may or may not be videos of me dancing provocatively on a pole. <laughs> uh, dancing around karaoke and singing. Who was who was there, Mike? Mainly, mainly just the crew guys, or like? Oh yeah, it was the crew guys, V Man. Um, yeah, it was it was majority of the Slipknot crew. So we have a pretty big crew. Not everybody was there, but there was a good amount of people there. So there's a there's a lot of witnesses, unfortunately, to that uh, <laughs> spectacle. <laughs> so everyone knows, man. If you rock up with the with the white pants on, it's going to be trouble. Yeah, night. if they were, yeah, because I don't, I don't party, like I don't drink a whole lot, but when I do, and now I'm saying it's, if I have white pants on, I'm ready to have some fun. <laughs> so that's good to know, man. Um, I'm going to go to my next question here. Uh, Anthony, hey man, oh, Anthony DeVito, yep, yeah, and Anthony's got an obsidian. I, I know that because he's mentioned it to me before, which is super cool. Um, can you expand on the version 1.5 mods? Yeah. Um, so um, basically what we wanted to do is we wanted to uh, increase uh, some of the tactile feel, some of the touch response, et cetera. So a lot of it is uh, we changed around the way that the presence, uh, presence and resonance will also called depth and detail in our amps. We change around that circuit. We change values uh, pretty drastically. Okay. We change the actual way it's wired. Uh, we also changed some of the coupling caps in the lead channel 
change the coupling caps and uh, some of the other stuff in the clean as well as the crunch. So um, there was actually numerous components. It's, I believe, 12 or 13 components that are changed within the amp. And it's not drastic, uh, but it's enough to make a, a difference. Uh, the low end uh, gets rid of a little bit of the sub lows that are kind of unusable with guitar amps. Yep. And tightens things up, makes it a little bit more reactive to the feeling. Uh, the front end is a little bit tighter. Um, the gain is reduced, but also increased in ways. Um, we go to a smaller coupling cap uh, for the for the lead channel. And when you do that, you are reducing gain a slight bit. And same thing with the cathode bypass cap. Uh, but uh, changing out the bright cap on it uh, to a different size also kind of almost makes it feel like it's more saturated. So it increases the high frequency, uh, you know, saturation yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you reduce the size of a coupling cap, particularly early in the circuit, it'll, it'll tighten up the amp, right? So you can yep. kind of, you can extract more gain without it going into the, into the world of being undefined, if you like. Yeah. Woofy and undefined and stuff, yeah. which I mean, the obsidian still has an obscene amount of gain on tap. I mean, you never really need to push it past. I would say one o'clock at the absolute most. Yeah. So, yeah. so is that a, is that uh, the V one point five mods? Is that something that so existing owners can send the amp in and yeah, have it? Absolutely, they can send them to us. Uh, we basically to save them money. Uh, if they still have the uh, the original box or another box, we that you guys can actually use our UPS account. So we'll send you a label. You just have to drop it off off at a, a UPS facility. Uh, we get it. We usually do the mod within two days and ship the amp back to you. And uh, basically you just pay for the mod plus, uh, plus shipping. So it's fairly easy. And Jason, yeah. you're going to be doing a couple in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, man. Um, yeah. That would be super cool. So uh, how would, if someone's in Australia and they own one of these amps, they would, they could contact you and then we could organize it from there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We actually have one gentleman. If he's on here, I apologize. We haven't got it sorted out. I'll get it sorted with Jason and we'll get it to you. And there's also uh, uh, two gentlemen in China. One guy has three. The other guy oh, wow. has two. And one guy in Japan, they all want to get them modded. And I said, your best bet is to send them to you because it's a lot shorter of a distance. Well, yeah. Hey, so. that would be super cool. And man, I actually shipped an Alta to a guy in China. Uh Gee, this week, I reckon that I shipped it on Monday and he received it yesterday. So it took four days from yeah. Melbourne to Beijing. Super quick. Like that's, it takes longer to send an amp to Perth, which is <laughs> like the other side Same of Australia. That, that's like five or six days, right? This got to China in four, like delivered to his door. So super easy. Um, uh, Alex says, yeah, don't forget to hit the like. Come on, guys. If you haven't already, do that. That'd be cool. Um, Ryan says, oh, this is more of a comment, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to go through it. Mike did full backline for the band I was in a while back. We always got compliments on how amazing our tones were compared to the other band we played with, seriously, some of the best cabs in the biz. Was that like, you know, when you talk, told the story about you first got into kind of teching and stuff, was that with Ryan? No. So basically, uh, Ryan is one of our customers. He bought a full backline of cabs. So they bought two guitar cabs and a bass cab. And uh, that's what they toured with. And they absolutely loved him. Yeah. His first cab was a 412 115. 
we've done so we had talked briefly before about some crazy configurations so we've done 112 212 115 112 115 312 212 115 412 512 412 115 512 115 612 and an 8 by 12 and that doesn't include the base cabs we've done that are also pretty crazy <laughs> in fact if anybody's looking for some 8 by 12 guitar cabs we have a local customer that has two that uh he went offload because he doesn't play out anymore. <laughs> How do you transport an eight by twelve, man? That is, that's just with another person. <laughs> now, they're actually not as big as you would think they would be. Uh, they're not tall. They're actually uh, forty inches wide by forty six inches tall with the casters, and they actually move around pretty easy. Um, a couple bands actually use them. So uh, Phil and Selmo and the Illegals. So Phil from Pantera and Down. So every one of his side projects besides Pantera, they actually use uh, two 8x12s and two 6x12 base cabs. So they push that's, a lot of air. <laughs> that's insane, man. That's, that's so cool. Um, we've got a question here from Mr. Woodchuck. It says, uh, how do you find the offset of the speakers on the Omega cabs change the sound versus, uh, versus four so, speakers in a perfect square pattern? So Jason, I'm not sure if you know, but basically when we first started, we were, we really did. Uh, I spent a lot of time in acoustics, uh, basically just trying different things out and we still off, we're still going to offer those cabs, but we don't offer as much. So the big difference with the offset speaker arrangement, it has a lot to do with phasing. So when you actually have four speakers like this, you have a big dead center. Uh, so what you have is you have uh, phase cancellations because think of it like this. If yep. you have two speaker cones with this sound and this sound coming to one of yours at the same time, they're going to be in different time signatures. When they're on the same plane, that's where you're going to experience problems with is because you have that big dead spot. You have four speakers that are projecting sound at different time signatures based on the frequencies. So when you actually offset the speakers, that reduces it quite a bit. And what you get is instead of a traditional 4x12 with four speakers and a square pattern, which everyone knows when you sit in front of a four by 12, five feet away and sit down in front of it or 10 feet away, gets pretty nasty. It gets very laser, you know, Oh yeah. It can get really, really kind yeah. of. So yeah. the projection of a standard four by 12 is pretty shallow because from an acoustic standpoint, a four by 12 guitar cab, especially a slant is one of the worst designs ever created for, uh, for sound reinforcement. Luckily it actually, created a sound for guitar and everybody loves it. So it works. Um, the offset pattern basically that we did shifts one speaker down and then it matches right below it. So you have very minimal space that's dead in the center. Yeah. That increases projection drastically because all the speakers actually start to work together. You have less of a phasing issue between the relationship of the speakers. Then internally, since you don't have four speakers sharing an exact same distance from the sides other speakers from the top in the corner, you actually start to diminish standing waves internally. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. with that design, you get a much better projection and a much better horizontal dispersion. Uh, vertical dispersion is, is a little bit better, not drastic, but no cab really has a good vertical dispersion because you're not going up and down when you're standing. Now, the reason that we're actually switching a lot of our new cabs to the more traditional pattern is because the sound when you're recording, when you're also standing in front of it, for, excuse me, from a close proximity is oftentimes more desirable with that. 
the offset design, in my opinion, is superior for stage use when you're going to be 10, 15 feet away from your cab or even 5, 10 feet away from your cab. Uh, you're actually going to hear the speaker cab far more. It's going to project further. It's going to be more natural in your ear. Uh, the more traditional design, in my opinion, actually works better from a closer standpoint and also from a recording standpoint, which yes. is why we're going to be offering both. Okay. So when you say recording, like if you're, if you're close, close micing that speaker, mm -hmm. um, you'll get different results depending Correct. on- yeah. Yeah. And this plays into the acoustics aspect of it because when you look at our offset design, uh, the speaker, so if this is the edge of the speaker cab, this speaker is actually a little bit closer to the top and to the side. So the reflections from this, uh, the, the sound waves bouncing off the walls plays a role in the way that the speaker is actually pr uh, producing sound because they're paper cones. The sound is actually going to come out in a different way. If you had the speaker farther away, from both sides, you're actually going to be a little bit more bass heavy. So with our offset design, the one speaker is much farther away from the top and the, the side where the other speaker right next to it, to the, you know, and, and top of it a little bit is closer. So what we did was with our traditional design, we actually tried numerous different positions and we came up with what we believe to be an optimized location for the distance between the sidewalls and the top and bottom of the cab to give you the best balance and give you the best response. So it's not to say that our, our previous cabs sound bad in the studio because they don't. We're, numerous bands have recorded with them and love it. We just feel that the response of the new design is a little bit better off for that aspect, which is why we're going to be offering both. Uh, we're going to be re-releasing the original design, the offset design again in the, in the near future for bands that want to play live and have that sound really projected out front yep. or just want that sound that they got in the recording studio from somebody else's cab that uh, somebody else that used our stuff. Yeah. And are the, the outer, the actual outer dimensions of the cab, uh, is it different? Are identical. Design? Nope. They're, identical. They're identical. Yeah. Okay. So uh, our cabs, the outer dimensions are 30 inches by 30 inches. So 30 inches wide, 30 inches tall. I don't know what that equates to in millimeters. Cause that would be like, a thousand ninety, you know, just ridiculous I mean, numbers. <laughs> I've kind of got used because of obvious reasons. I've actually kind of got used to working in, in inches. In I, yeah, I have. Yeah, totally. And I did like when I actually really got into PCB design. Um, I found that a lot of the kind of component footprints and so on that I was using were in mil, like a thousandth of an inch. Oh yeah. So I just went all into it, and so everything I do is all all done. In, in inches now and mills, it's, it's, I, it's dumb but it it also makes sense in a terrible way that's <laughs> <laughs> kind of you kind of got used to it but I'm, I'm forever doing a conversion between one and the other um but yeah i can kind of I, I can do it now uh i think luke has got a question there how did the mick thompson i think we covered this one luke yes. um mike we talked about that yeah he is still using all of our products live he's using our cabs he's using our amps and uh possibly some other stuff in the future. Yeah. Some different stuff. Won't go too much in detail on that. <laughs> you can show me the next time you come down to Australia. Yeah. Um, which I'm looking forward to whenever that happens. Uh, uh, Cal Hicks. Cal Hicks, yeah. Yo, Mike. The 513 says hello. Um, I'm not too sure what that means, but you're... Uh, it's our area code for phone. I'm originally from the same location that he is. Ah. So. Okay. <laughs> could, a, could a cabinet be designed to cater to a plug-in plus power amp setup to get closer to the source tone, like a like a Bowtech fly rig. Yeah. 
This has been a topic that's been pretty difficult that we tried a couple years. Um, essentially, what you're looking for is a four-inch flat response rig. FRFR rigs, in my opinion, never sound exactly or have the exact same response that a tr traditional guitar cab and amp Agreed. will. Um, it, there's companies that have come out with some really good ones. There's companies that have come out with some that were, I don't know exactly what they were going for. Um, from my experience, one of the best options for using a, a, a digital rig, whether it be a plug-in and power amp or whatever, if you have something like an XFX or like a Helix that can actually just use the preamp and not use the power amp modeling, and you use either a tube power amp or a good quality solid state power amp, and then run it through a traditional gu a guitar cab, you're actually going to get it a more realistic sound versus going with a full range flat response rig. Four range yep. flat response rigs are also incredibly difficult to mic up because usually it is either a separate woofer with a tweeter or a horn, or yep. it is a concentric design. And, um, you know, you have the uh, compression driver tweeter or horn in the center of the speaker, which of course, at that point, you're not going to want to put a mic directly in the center or else it's just going to be, total fizz city. Now, somebody else may have experienced something that I don't and may have found something that works better, but we, we tried it for, a, we tried it for a couple of years and we went way too deep into it, including crossovers and, and insanely high-end drivers and compression drivers. And they worked great. They sounded good. But as soon as you compared it to a real cab, there was definite differences and you could hear deficiencies of the frfr design so we abandon it and we prefer to just you know stay a little bit more traditional at this point it's it's the way man and i think that when whenever i think about you know modelers and all of that right the whole tube versus modeler debate which we've already you know talked a little bit about on this chat um the biggest issue i think that still remains is is this one which is like if you want to use a modeler but actually have it up at stage volumes like you would have a guitar amp this is this is this is an area that hasn't been it's a problem that hasn't been solved yet i've never heard or played a model up at stage volume like that that sounded like a real amp they do when you plug them into monitors and stuff and maybe yes. through a, and for a pa yeah absolutely but when you want to have that you know, amp in the room kind of experience or whatever, they it just doesn't work. And the thing that I've found also, and this is actually trying it myself, not just, you know, reading forums and stuff is my own personal experience, is that when you use a modeler, particularly with an FRFR style monitor or cab or whatever, you get a massive variation in the tone when you bring the volume up. Yeah. Whereas with, you get that whole Fletch and Munson thing going on, right? Whereas with a guitar cab with a tube amp, it seems to just keep its kind of the tonally it stays there even if you crank it you know a lot of it has to do with the fact that you're using one driver versus two drivers you know a, a, a dual driver setup you're going to have inconsistencies when you actually look at a frequency plot of a four inch flat response yeah there's going to be peaks and valleys they try to compensate that with crossover networks but tweeters and compression drivers are inherently far more efficient than a woofer is the more volume you go you can't compensate a passive crossover to account for different volumes that are not simply pink or white noise. So you yep. get differences when it comes to a guitar speaker, you have one cone 
that is acting as the entire uh, frequency band. It's transducer for the entire frequency band, even though it's for guitar speakers, very shallow. It's usually 70 to 5,500 Hertz is your peak. You do have other peaks beyond that, that go up to 15 K, but not much nowhere near the actual nominal uh, SPL rating. So guitar speakers are definitely going to be a little bit more accurate and maintain the same profile of sound through a varying degree of volume as opposed to a dual driver unit that's trying to amplify uh, that other rig. Now it gets different when you're talking about, you know, high-end PA systems, but even PA systems, you know, once you start turning the volume up, you have to change things around. It's not just, oh, you can turn the volume up without adjusting different parameters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It makes a lot of sense, man. Um, a question here from PF, Jason and Mike, suggestions on a 72 re super reverb bias setting for long tube life and max headroom. Look, uh, I mean, I, my advice here wouldn't be particular to any, any you know, particular fender amp or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't think you need, personally, I don't think you need to bias too hot. Um, I normally go in around somewhere between 60 to 65% dissipation, depending, you know, and, I think that that will deliver. You'll get rid of crossover distortion at that point, but you don't need to run them too too hot. I don't know, Mike. Have you got any comments on this one? Honestly, we try not to bias our tubes too hot to begin with, because once you actually start to bias really hot, you're actually going to start to get clipping from the tubes, and you're actually yeah. going to start to lose headroom. You're gonna. It's going to create a little bit more low end. It's going to take away from the chime and the top end. Uh, and honestly, we actually bias our amps fairly cold. Uh, not as much as like a fifty. Not as cold as a fifty-one fifty, but. Typically, you know, we don't really do any pure clean amps. We don't have any fender circuits, so that's going to act different than our amps. But typically for like a 6L6, we do, we bias it 45 milliamps uh, or millivolts uh, per pair, which is pretty low. Yeah. You don't have to go excessive. A lot of people think that a higher bias is going to equal more tone, and it actually doesn't. Especially in modern high gain amps, you actually want to try and keep the power section as clean as possible is opposed to something like a JMP where it's, of course, you want to push that power section because that's where a lot of the distortion comes from. Modern amps, especially based on the SLO circuit, the Soldano uh, circuit, you start to really push that into to power amp distortion and it is not pleasant. Agree. Yeah, so, and I think, yeah, any kind of modern master volume amp, uh, all, all of that, all of the kind of distortion characteristics are coming from the preamp, right? So yeah. You just need that power amp to kind of... But my recommendation for the reverb settings is, you know, Leo Fender and his team were geniuses back in the day because they pretty much created the platforms that everybody uses. I would go based on uh, just what the what the actual specification is from manufacturer. Yeah, I agree. The second part of this question, so Lyle, that's a reference to, to Lyle Coldwell from Psionic Audio. And I've mentioned this a bunch of times. Lyle has a really fantastic video on Marshall grounding. And I think the amp that he demonstrates the ground, it's kind of a Larry style grounding. But I think Lyle, Lyle does a fantastic job of explaining why it works rather than just show you how to do it. If anyone hasn't seen that video, check it out on Lyle's channel. Um, my mods, I mentioned before about, you know, playing playing around with an 800, you know, either 2203 or 2204 circuit. And I think the two the two most, I'll just say, right, two simple things you can do to improve it if you're finding yours a bit undefined or whatever, change the first coupling cap to a 2.2 nanofarad rather than a 22. 
as we said before in the chat, right, that'll tighten up, it'll knock some bass out of the preamp and kind of tighten the amp up. And then you can bring a little bit of a little bit of kind of depth back into the amp just with a simple fixed resonance circuit or a fixed depth circuit off the negative feedback. I've shown this a bunch of times on my channel, right? So you can go and look it up. But those two mods, simplest thing you'll ever do, they'll, uh, well, I think subjectively anyway, will improve your 800 massively. Absolutely. Fully agree. Yeah. Uh, what else we got here, guys? Ben. Yeah, Ben says, yeah, we've talked about the 1.5 uh, mods, yeah. Ben. So if you missed that, you can go back and have a listen to the to the stream um, on replay and Mike goes. Yeah. Cause the Granifier, uh, Ben actually he doesn't live too far from uh, our shop. All right. He has oh, cool. a Granifier, very similar thing. So it's going to uh, tighten things up. It's going to make the touch response better. The notes kind of jump out more. Top end is a little bit sweeter and um, it's got a little bit, a little bit more snarl to it. Yeah. Cool. We've got some questions here about the mic that you, you mentioned uh, actually, so uh, KXM Rock says, can you state the mic that is better than so a 57? It's not better. It's just a different thing. Uh, it's the Biodynamic M201. It's a dynamic mic, uh, you know, very similar in size to the SM57. The biggest thing with the 201 is, uh, is that it's a little bit sweeter and cleaner up in the top end. It doesn't have as much of that typical 57 uh, kind of fizz, which is still... And I love the 57. Uh, it also has a little bit more bottom end to it. So it gives you the same response that a 57 does, but it's just a little bit more balanced. Also check out the new Shure 545 that they just re-released. It's it, That thing's pretty awesome. It's based on yeah. a 57. It sounds a lot like a 57, but yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome as well. There you go. Yep, there um, it is. <laughs> there it is there. There's someone, someone was listening carefully. That's cool. Uh, Jerry's asking Mike, what guitars and pickups do you prefer with your amps? What do you guys use for testing at the shop? Um, so we have a lot of different guitars here, uh, with a lot of different pickup setups. My personal favorite, I'm more of a passive pickup guy. Um, I've used EMGs over the years. Um, I had a couple guitars with Mick's old, uh, Seymour Duncan's, his active ones that were pretty cool. Honestly, Typically what we try to go for is we try to go for passive pickups that are not overly hot or high output. Um, some of my personal favorites are the DiMarzio deactivator, which a lot of people will be like, you know, they'll immediately think like, wait a second, isn't that like a cheap knockoff of an active? No, it's actually a pretty incredible passive pickup. Uh, it's not too hot. It has a lot of the really cool characteristics that active pickups do, but without the overly compressed uh, mid-range and low end. Um, so the deactivator is a great bridge pickup. Uh, another DiMarzio that we love is the uh, um, Illuminator, which is a John Petrucci. Oh, yeah. uh, the Crunch Lab, another John Petrucci signature is pretty awesome. Uh, if you like, we test those a lot with our amps, as well as uh, Wes Hauk. Um, his signature Jupiter pickup from Seymour Duncan. Those things are awesome as well. Um, Ethan Spalding from Instrumental has probably one of the best passive pickups uh, out there, in my opinion. Uh, the Safety 3 and the Safety 4 are pretty incredible. Um, all this, honestly, all the pickups from, from Donable, from Sasha, those things are absolutely amazing. Uh, very clear, very transparent. Um, 
But as far as guitars here, I mean, we have a lot with different Seymour Donkins, DeMarzios, EMGs, Fishmans, Lundgrens, Bare Knuckles, Instrumentals. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've pretty much got a ton of different <laughs> do ones. You have a, do you have a setup? Like, do you have mixed setup? Like, from uh, a guitar? Not, not at the moment. Not at the moment. Uh, I used to. I used to have one of his signature guitars with his pickups. Uh, but since we've changed everything now... Uh, I am going to be buying a, another ESP and getting some of his signature pickups to put in there. I have one of his uh, prototype sets. I'm just waiting on them to get another couple sets built for us. So, because we, cool. I mean, they're not fully released yet, but of course I'll get some before they get released. But we try yeah. to test out with numerous different tunings, different styles of guitars and different pickups to make sure that they work well. Of course, some pickups work far better than others. Um, and we're actually, I'm actually going to be doing a, uh, a blog. We're going to be releasing on a website for, you know, my personal recommendations, which, you know, it's all subjective, but it's pickups that I found, uh, kind of deliver the best yeah. for my, you know, yeah. personal taste. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, people do want to know, right? Like in terms of, it's a bit like we were talking before about the reference cab. Yeah. So, you know, a bunch of different speakers, a bunch of different cabs, but you kind of have one that you kind of know, like, well, this is my reference point. It's the yeah. same thing, isn't it? My main reference guitar, honestly, is I have a 1998 ESP Horizon Custom that I had built way back in the day. It's bolt-on, it's maple neck, uh, solid ash body, uh, tunematic bridge, and that has been my go-to for reference since the beginning. Um, that's actually loaded with the DiMarzio deactivator and a humbucker from hell another demarzio that oh, yeah. sounds like a single coil it's not hot i don't know why they call it that but everybody that comes into the shop when they play it they absolutely fall in love with the way it sounds so um yeah and honestly just to elaborate a little bit i highly recommend that everybody try out different picks different string gauges different pickup height and different action height because that all has major major roles in a way that a, a, a guitar and amp setup is actually going to sound. Yeah, some 100%. pickups have a very bad thud. Some strings sound more dead than others. If you don't have your pickup height, you know, match properly for your setup, it's going to either be too hot or too, uh, you know, too soft in the lows or, you know, too weak in the gain department. It's a balancing act. And to anybody that says like, Oh, I got to try this amp out, Ed, but it wasn't my normal guitar. I didn't like the amp. Uh, you need to also try it out with the guitar you're familiar with because they all play huge roles in response and uh, overall sound. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Couldn't agree more. Um, Lyle is in the chat actually. Sonic Audio, I mentioned that. So you're saying, yeah, the M two hundred one is more like a fifty seven on steroids. Yeah. Fantastic, Mike. Yeah. Yep. That's cool. Um, Simon Hosford is here. Hey, Hoss. How are you, man? Um, quick observation. I'm sure there must be some amp builders that aren't super nice. But I'm yet to see you chat with one, Jay. I only have the good guys on here, man. <laughs> no, there's not, I mean, honestly, in this industry, I've I've been pretty fortunate with, uh, you know, 95% of the people that I meet are actually pretty awesome. A lot of people think that it's going to be cutthroat and that, you know, people are going to down talk other builders. But honestly, from my experience, I've met so many people like Reinhold Bogner is awesome guy. Uh, you know, Jason, of course, I was he's debatable. <laughs> um, no, everybody's, you know, same thing with, uh, just other manufacturers. I'm sure there's some ones out there that are not the greatest, but I think yeah, them are pretty um, good. Look, I'm, 
I can make this comment as a you know relatively newer entrant into this world is how I think of it anyway. I have been completely blown away with how just so fucking awesome everyone is yeah. in this industry. Like really, really, because I was not that I thought about it a lot, Mike, but I was expecting um, a bit of attitude and a bit of this and a bit of that, and I haven't found any of it. All yeah. I've found is super helpful, nice people yep. that want to share stuff and talk about stuff and help you. Like the amount of help that I've had from everyone, including yourself, has just been humbling, to be honest. There's there's no room in this planet, honestly, for animosity and to be a dick. I mean, honestly, like Kyle Rhodes was one of the first guys I met in the industry, and I can't tell you how much good times and how many laughs we've had. So, Yeah, he's a fun dude. I had yes, a um, I had a night out with him and Shay. We talked about it a little <laughs> oh, bit. I heard about that one. <laughs> Fuck man, I needed my white pants on for that one. Um, I had I packed the whole social calendar of 2023 into that one night. So much stuff happened. It was one of those, <laughs> was one of those crazy nights, you know, where like you just go, you think about all the things that happened in that one evening, and I go, "Fuck man, so much stuff." And then when I speak to the guys about it, because I can't remember all of it, <laughs> and they go, "Oh yeah, oh, what about oh, what about this? What about that?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, forgot about it." it yeah, fucking... for uh, for Kyle and I, it was a couple Nams worth. Oof. He makes a couple of our other friends in there, and it was uh, yeah. there wasn't much sleep going on each day. Oh man, yeah, it's um, it's crazy. All right, so I'm just gonna through this chat here guys there's a lot of um a lot of commentary in here between yourselves which is which is cool it's making me hard to uh, making it hard to find something um yeah white pants are going to get stained yeah well they do trust me that's why i'm on my like fourth pair yeah i was gonna say man <laughs> you need to have a few uh mr woodchuck's got another another question thank god uh Get away from the from the drinking stories. Um, did you ever did you ever get to hear the Rivera KR Seven Mark II that was being built? Uh, no, I I didn't. I didn't. I didn't actually know there actually was a Mark II that was going to be built. So I get to play. I get to play through mix uh, the ones that he used on tour, and the amount of low end those amps have is insane. It's so much bottom end. Probably the best clean channel you'll ever hear in a high gain amp. Those, I mean, Paul Rivera Sr., I mean, he, his lineage is with Fender. I mean, he's absolutely a, a genius when it comes to cleans, but no, I never got to play a Mark II. I didn't know they actually uh, they uh, had one. Me neither. Uh, KXM Rock is asking, what tubes do you have in the Obsidian, Mike? Uh, so we actually moved to 6CA7s for the power tubes. Um, because we were doing a lot with 6L6 and EL34s. And the 6CA7 is kind of a blend between the two. Uh, it's actually a 6L6 structure, uh, very similar to a 6L6, but that's in an EL34 bottle that you can actually buy as hotter, like an EL34. So you get a little bit more of the bottom end that a, uh, that a 6L6 has, uh, far more mid-range like an EL34 has. So uh, luckily our amps actually kind of display those sonic characteristics when you change the tubes pretty well. Uh, we were using KT66s, you know, for a long time. We used them as an option, but they're very hard to get nowadays. And a couple of the manufacturers that did make them um, 
I don't care for the new versions or they were having reliability issues. So uh, you can still order our amps with 606 or EL34 or KT77, uh, but CXCA7 or uh, 606 are two that we primarily use the most. Okay. What what was it about the KT66s that you liked? The, earlier? Um, the 66s are kind of, it's the kinkless triad design is kind of unique. Um, but in regards to the 66, it had a lot of the same characteristics as the 6L6 was slightly more scooped, but not in a bad way yeah. and sounded a little bit wider, had a, almost a little bit uh, more headroom to them, even though they're not clipping, even though you're not pushing the power section to clipping uh, dynamics in a high end actually sounded a little bit more cleaner and the lows actually have a little bit more like piano, like low end where you hear everything. We would still love to use them, but we just haven't found anything that is, uh, as good as the originals that we were getting from Tube Amp Doctor, and that is really readily available. Cool. Uh, Big Sloppy is asking. Um, I love these these names, YouTube names. <laughs> <laughs> Always crazy. Um, hey, all is breadboarding and pedals a somewhat safer way of getting into circuitry and amplifiers down the line? Mm, for pedals, I say yes. For amps, no. <laughs> Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, yeah. don't breadboard a, a no, high voltage tubing. Yeah, you you don't want to get hit with 470 volts. <laughs> but I, but I think is you know yeah, this question does get asked a lot. Like in terms of you know if you've never touched a soldering iron really or kind of got into circuitry, then yeah, play with pedals is a good place to start. I I, I didn't. I just went straight to amps. But many people have gone through the pedal kind of you know not learning ground, I guess, but the pedal phase before they went into amps. So you can definitely do it. Uh, Mark saying, yeah, Magnetone announced his partnership with Slash. I saw that today, but I I know that he wow. and Richard Fortas have been using them for a, quite a while. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. So cool. that, um, yeah, I'm not sure how they're, how they're exactly how they're running them, but um, when I was in – Actually, when I was in the States, Mike, when I was I came back to LA after spending a week in Indiana and Ohio visiting Shay and Kyle, um, just through through a connection, actually got to talk with Richard Fortas. And he said, even back then, they were both using, they hadn't really announced it, but they were using the magnetones back then. So That's I think crazy. Using I honestly more. haven't played any modern magnetones. Uh place down the street from us has some very old ones that were, they have such a unique, cool sound, but yeah, yeah. I'm not the kind of player that goes for those. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's a whole different style. Uh, same yeah, thing with like a dumble. I can't do a dumble justice. It's it's weird. <laughs> there are, you want me to play I, some capitated wrist? I'm good, but no. Not yeah, I've not I've not played a real one, obviously, but I've I've yeah. played a few of the you know Seriotone uh, ODS clones, which is probably where yeah. Nick. You know, got to kind of cut his teeth, right? I think he started with some of that Dumble stuff, didn't he? Oh yeah. And next, I awesome. mean, you know, you pretend to be Robin Ford for a, a nanosecond, but it's <laughs> when um, you realize, all right, I'm going to go over to something with more gain that hides a little bit of this. They're pretty confronting, aren't they? The play, like yes, oh, fire out. It's like same thing know. with the train wreck. Yeah, I've never. Yeah, look, I know, I know, Bob's really into the train wreck circuits, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, big yeah, time. He is. Um, something I haven't really explored too heavily yet, to be honest. 
He's building a bunch of your amps right now. He's got he bought a bunch of the boards or the, the yeah. boards that you actually brought out for us. This so is it. Fun with some of those, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a that was a. I remember that morning, man, because we were we were messaging. Um, you know, you were messaging me on Facebook, and we were getting set to. I was going to come in and meet you and Bob for you know a few beers and a pizza or whatever. And you you're like you're like yeah, bring some boards and yeah, yeah, no worries, no worries. And then you said to me, "Oh, have you got one of your amps there? <laughs> bring." <laughs> Bring that yeah, in too. Tell that whole story. Well, yeah. It's so kind of I, exciting. Oh man, exciting. Um, I had three. I had three Alters here. Two of them were sold and ready to ship. And then I had my own one, which is serial number zero, if you like, right? At final version. It wasn't a prototype. This was actually production spec. So I said to you, I said, "Yeah, I've got my amp here." And and I said, "But why? Why?" Why, why would I bring it in? And you said, well, Jim wants to try it. So I I never actually, I don't know, I've never found out how this happened, but so I'll ask you now, how did Jim come to asking about that amp? Well, how did that happen? Uh, basically, I told uh, his tech, Brad, I asked him, I said, because he was trying out some different amps. And I said, you know, you think he'd be interested in trying this one out? And he's like, what is it? And I explained it. I was like, dude, this thing is, the videos are pretty incredible. And he was like, yeah, he'd be down to try it out. And then uh, basically um, I saw Jim earlier in the day. I said, I have an amp coming for you. It'll be, you know, he's like, what is it? I said, it's a brand you never heard of. He's like, okay. So it'll be in the jam room for you. And then, uh, you know, it all kind of went from there. He was like, yeah, I'm down to check it out. And then all of a sudden he was playing in the jam room and wouldn't stop playing it and kind of fell in love with it. So, <laughs> yeah. He did. I, I, I remember, so that was, I handed you the amp on the Wednesday. That was when I came in and met you guys, right? Uh, and then the gig was on the Friday, yeah? So you had arranged, you know, a, a, a ticket and someone for me, which was awesome. And then on my way traveling out there, early afternoon, I guess it was, um, I think that was when Jim was in the jam room. I didn't think... He didn't get to kind of play the amp till that Friday afternoon. Correct, yeah, because we yeah. had a uh, yeah. There's no way. I think we had a day off before uh, that. So yeah, you did. Or, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, I think anyway. Thursday was your setup day because you had like you you'd flown in from Jakarta on the Tuesday. Wednesday yeah. we caught up. Thursday you were setting up, and then Friday was that's what it was. The, yeah, yeah. the show day of the show, and um, uh. There was some there was some discussion with yourself and and Bob that and I obviously met Brad I met Brad um, on yeah. the Friday on the day of the show right backstage um, and I've kept in contact with Brad he's he's been awesome actually good great guy and uh, oh yeah he is yeah man he's amazing I follow his Instagram uh, if anyone who doesn't follow Brad Clifford on Instagram I suggest you do he's always posting interesting stuff um, but yeah so I was on my way out to the venue Mike when you started messaging me and you said, oh, Jim's playing the amp now, like now at that moment in time. And I was just like, yes, and <laughs> waiting, <laughs> sitting here with my, like nervously holding my phone while you were messaging me. And, um, and then I was like, I was watching the dots, you know, how when someone's typing, you can see the dots like dot, 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 dot. I'm like, come on, what's he going to say? And you I came was half tempted and- to tell you that it broke or that he hated it. Just a joke with you. <laughs> Man, you would have destroyed me. <laughs> you would have completely – and so you came, he came back and you said something like, he loves it, um, he wants to buy it, how much? 
question mark, right? So it went it went from there. Uh, and I think he played, if my mem- memory serves me correct, I'm pretty sure on this, because I think yourself, Bob, and Brad told me that um, you took the amp, you took that mm-hmm. one, you played Sydney the next night, he didn't use it. But the night, uh, the night after that was in a Brisbane, Brisbane show, and yep. he used it for the uh, the whole Brisbane show. And it's been in the reg since. Yeah, and he's he's taken another one, which went into the other because you've got an A big and a an A rig and a B rig, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So everything we talked about before, when, with regards to mix setup or with a whole backline setup, there's two complete duplicates. Yep. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Just stationed yep. at different parts. All of the three world. guys. So. Uh, basically, DJ, uh, Mick, uh, drums, the bass, and the guitar are all exact duplicates. So, yeah. Um, so that's yeah. It's um, uh, that whole thing with Jim has just been obviously awesome, great experience, and I built Hopefully that. It's little- got just more sales too. <laughs> yeah. This thing, great. Just let me know when that commission check is in the oven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, I owe you guys so much. Nice. Um, this is, but that's just all back to that whole thing about when Simon Hosford posted in this chat about just how nice everyone's been. This is like that was just a, you know, it's a really great example of it. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just how it is. Like it's just how it is. Um, right. Where are we with this chat, guys? I got sidetracked there with my yeah, sorry. story. That's all right, man. Um, I could talk about that anytime. Um, so come in here, Scott Holiday from Rival Sons has been using modelers with his orange Supro cabs on stage. It's probably a bit like Metallica, isn't it? The Metallica using Axe Effects, but then they they actually pipe it out to cabs on stage. Like yes. real yeah, so they're using matrix power amps. And yeah, I mean, we didn't say that it doesn't work. It's just kind of a, a preference at, at times of, um, you know, what somebody wants to hear. I think it a lot of it really depends on how much time somebody has actually spent setting it up. And by all means, like I said, it's there's people that are getting incredible sounds out of it. Um, but, you know, so far, I haven't been able to personally find from my ear something that sounds as good as a, uh, is a real analog tube amp or even solid state amp and a cab versus a modeling setup. But there's definitely guys that are getting it. Yeah. Um, I guess at that point it's, um, it's all about, it's all about getting the sound out front and then whatever they're monitoring on stage is, is just for the player. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, when you, especially when you go direct, you have a good IR through your Axe Effects, through your Quad Cortex, or your Helix, or whatever you may be playing. You have it going out front, and they can manipulate it in various different ways. You know, you're going through the PA system, you're going through the the console out front. They're changing everything. You know, they're not just leaving it as a dry signal. They're actually putting high pass and low pass filters on it. They're doing EQing. They're doing different tricks. A lot of companies, or a lot of, I'm sorry, bands. And a lot of front of house guys, they're even using plugins or outboard gear to actually manipulate the sound to get it more like studio sounds. So that's not to say, though, that what just like what Jason said, you may not be getting that exact same sound on stage as what you're hearing from the PA because yeah. it's going through a lot, just like albums, any record. You're not just hearing that, you know, the 
the the ca- the uh, amp into the cab into one mic and then direct in. There's a lot of EQing. There's a lot of tricks involved. There's a lot of different stuff. Double tracking, quad tracking, uh, compressors, limiters, uh, various EQs. You know, sometimes stacked EQs. All that plays a, a major role in what you're actually hearing versus what the actual true rig is. Yeah, hundred percent. And man, have you found like dialing a a rigging or an amp, an ampen for studio versus live? Even in think about you know the way that that way that Mick runs it, uh, you often dial them in the same or very differently for those two. Uh, it depends on the amp, but yeah, typically it's going to be a little bit different. Um, you have a little bit more freedom in the studio because you have so many different ways of manipulation. Uh, and you can sit there and carefully carve and contour things where in the uh, live performance, you need to have it make sure that it cuts to the mix. So if you try to scoop your amp, the mids out and a live situation, you're going to get lost. Whereas in a studio, you can kind of get away with that. So uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely a difference in a studio setting versus a live setting. Um, there are people that use the exact same settings for live and for studio and it works. It, it, it all just depends. There's so many variables. Depends on the style of music, the tuning, the amount of distortion in the signal, pedals, you name it. There's just a lot of variables, just like everything else. Yeah, super cool. It's a question here from Jay. Um, hey, Jason, I hope you're living high and wide, man. Yeah, living the dream, brother. <laughs> <laughs> living the dream. It's a question for the dude on your right, which would be you, Mike. Question yeah. for Mike. Hey, y'all, are you all planning on a preamp slash distortion pedal in the future? Uh, I plead the that's fifth at the moment. <laughs> I can see that smile. Um, that's, a, that's a smile that means something. I'll say, yeah, I'll say it this way. Uh, there's so many things that we want to do. There's so many things that are possible. But being a small company, being, you know, that, you know, everybody right now, is inundated with getting builds done and we're still trying to do engineering on the side as well. Um, I, it's something that we want to do. It's something we plan on, but we don't have any definitive dates. And the only way that we're actually going to release anything is if it meets or exceeds our expectations and actually provides something for the uh, end user that yep. is not just a clone of something or that it's like, oh, this is good enough. It actually has to be a functional piece of gear that is going to be, you know, very useful, versatile, and, uh, you know, represent our company in a good way. We don't want to put anything just, out that's not uh, that's not indicative of what we already make. Because it's a, it's a super saturated market. And very saturated. Like, so you kind of need to figure out, like, what it – you know, because I often think about that, you know, well, I think about lots of things, right? But one of those yeah. like, oh, you know, is there is there a pedal in my future or whatever? And we talked a bit about this with Kyle when he was on as well um, from a design perspective, actually, in terms yeah. of the kind of like, you know, how how can you take knowledge that you've gained from tube ant design into the solid state world with pedals? And his answer was kind He's of yes. Really a couple of the companies have done really good with it as well. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those things that, yes, it's it's a it would be a great money maker for us. It would be great to increase you know the the outreach of our brand to people that don't want to buy a full on amp. But it also comes down to I almost feel like since we're so used to building tube amps, once we get into the solid state realm, 
which you know we would love to do. I have no problem with any solid state amp. Some of them sound insanely incredible. Uh, but it's something that's going to take longer because it's something that we don't have our, uh, you know, it's not our, you know, our main foray. It's, you know, tubes have been that. So while we really do want to make one, um, it's hard to say when it would happen, what features it's going to have, et cetera. Yeah, totally. And what about, man, have you ever thought about um, rack gear? Is that something that you think, do you think that, well, A, do you think there's a market in that? In that 100%. I yeah. love rack gear. Uh, yeah, I know. I, we love it. I'm we looking love over it. it. I'm looking over at some beautiful things over here right now. We love so, it. I love it too. And a lot of people do. It's a bit of a, yeah. I think I said last week with Dave, when Dave was on, we talked a bit about that and said, you know, is it, is it, a, is it a nostalgia thing or is it, I, is it I don't think so. a new market there? To be honest. So here's my take on rack gear. Uh, I think it actually has a bigger future than what people anticipate because everybody's trying to go smaller. Everybody's trying to go modular and yep. people need things to be able to travel with because a lot of these, a lot of boutique brands like myself, like you, like many others, we don't have the capability of supplying to numerous different backline companies. If one of our artists goes over to Germany, goes to Australia, et cetera, totally. doing something at his rack is going to be a smaller format oftentimes a little bit lighter weight that is going to be easier to travel with easier to bring people don't pay attention and don't realize how much cartage costs for getting like slip knots rigs when we ship those over to europe oh man one case i mean i hate to say it one case that is basically just spares for the past four years just shipping you're talking seventy five thousand and ninety thousand dollars for a case of spare pedals and wire etc so shipping is incredibly expensive when you're talking about doing that. So rack gear being smaller, being more compact, oftentimes lighter can be kind of the direction that is great to go. Uh, a lot of the modelers, you know, are rack based and why not have more amplifiers and preamps and power amps and stuff that are very cool to mix and match. That's my opinion on it. I'm in, man. I'm in. If that gives it a little bit of information away, whatever. <laughs> I think it's a good perspective. And I think that, um, you know, I was talking to a pro player here the other day who who was, he's actually looking for that kind of solution, you know, and he, yeah. the conversation started with kind of, you know, preamp based, you know, like a tube preamp based approach. But he's very um, cognizant of not having that on the floor. Yeah. Just like doesn't want to have that on the floor out in front and particularly in, you know, some of the places where you, you play in, in Australia, you know, there's a bit of beer flowing around or whatever you don't, <laughs> you don't kind of want that yeah. stuff on the ground, on the floor, but um, having it back in a still portable, but in a rack. Yeah. yeah 100%. I, so, you know, everybody's ideas are different on that aspect. Uh, my personal opinion on it is once you actually start to, bring stuff down to such a small size where it's going to fit in a pedal. There can be compromises. You know, some people make them and I'm just like, how the hell did you actually get this something this small to sound that amazing? Um, but from a longevity standpoint, we would prefer to keep things off the floor and use a controller to actually control it. Yes, it does take up more space. Yes, it is a separate component. It can increase cost because there's two separate components. But we're more in the game for uh, professional use 
and longevity of the product. It's not to say that those products aren't going to last. They can last forever, but with it, you know, we've never built a floor based, you know, tube preamp pedal and, um, you know, some companies make them, they sound great, but, yep. uh, we're, I don't think we're going to go down that exact route. Yeah. Cool. Un understandable. Quick question here from Simon. Uh, is your favorite bare knuckle pickup? Oh, uh, damn it. It's putting me on the spot. Um, is it the cold sweat or the, honestly, I'm, I'm terrible. And if That's Tim good, from man. bare knuckle sees this, I'm very sorry. Uh, it's, <laughs> Either the cold sweat, the mail bomb. It's not their super high output one. The aftermath was yeah. really cool. Um, it's one that's more of a, a PAF style. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit higher output than a, than okay. a standard PAF. It sounds like I've got a I've got the VH2 from Bare Knuckle, and that's I haven't tried that one yet. That's killer. This is hottish. You know, it's a it's not a it's not like a JB style. Like it's yeah. I would say a hot PAF. Um, I think it's down Eco two. It's it's great in a super strat for that for that thing. Yeah. Um. All right, we're getting through the stuff. Jerry says, "How how's it been working with Jim? Yeah, amazing. Um. Uh, a lot of contact through Brad. So probably Mike, probably very similar how you work with Mick. Where you know, on behalf of Mick, I would I would imagine that you, you do facilitate a lot of conversation with other Correct. suppliers. Yeah, and so yeah. On. It, yeah. It kind of it kind of keeps things a little bit smoother and easier because with us being the techs, with us being the ones that are hands on with all the gear, it is a lot easier for us to handle endorsements because those guys they do get busy with interviews, they get busy with a lot of band stuff, yeah, a lot of management stuff. So uh, it's typically that you know endorsers. Uh, companies they actually work with the techs uh, uh you know on a on a higher level yeah um, and and brad's been just awesome in that regard i mean i've had some yeah. contact with jim um in terms of direct messaging and so on but i've been and he's been nothing short of fantastic but i'm very very yeah. respect, Jim's respectful awesome. of that i certainly don't you know i don't message him and just routinely <laughs> hey, man. hey man what's, what's going on dude what are you watching what are you doing, man? You're like, yeah, not at all. Um, but he he does message me and say nice things about the amp, so that's I'm very happy about happy about that. Uh, yeah, Ben. Hey, hey, Ben. Ben's here in, in Adelaide, Australia, and check check him out, man. He he does one awesome pickups. Um, blown away yeah. by how cool uh, this might must be the amp community is. I wish pickup guys weren't such dicks. <laughs> and yeah, I'm aware of the irony because you're a pickup guy. Yeah, man. You're yeah, part of the problem um, or part of the solution. I haven't met really oh, oh no. I have. I've met one person I, I I'm not gonna mention any names that I don't even know if they're still in business. Uh I would never recommend anybody to buy his stuff just because he had very pickup, strong opinions pickup, on things. A pickup guy? Or, yeah. Yeah. He had right. very strong opinions on, on people's lifestyles and I don't, I don't approve of that. Um, but now I, I, I haven't experienced that, but you know, I can understand where you're coming from because I've heard the same thing from people in the pedal community, pedal builders saying that some pedal, pedal builders are, you know, kind of all high and mighty and, uh, yeah, sorry. Love to check out some of your pickups though. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I don't know. I haven't experienced that yet, but I'm certainly aware that it's, that it's out there. Yeah, um, I think majority of the animosity, to be honest, is between people and forums. And I think yep. it's a little ridiculous. I can't stand it. I, 
I get drugged, I get dragged into so many different Facebook groups and I end up leaving because I'm just like, why, why is there so much hate? Why is there so much animosity between people? It doesn't make any sense. If somebody likes a piece of gear, they like a piece of gear. If they don't just, you know, let it be. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, and, um, it can be a, it's can be a horrible place, right? Some of that stuff on the internet oh, is just it's like, toxic as can be and misinformation. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it gets pretty comical. The amount of misinformation that you'll see in some of these oh, gotcha. just, just about anything. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, we ne- we're nearly through these questions, Mike. Um, Vince is asking, what would be the advantage of adding local feedback in a preamp stage? Yeah, you do see this a little bit. Uh, you see it in the in the Jubilee circuit, for example. Reduces gain a little bit, makes it so it's actually tamed. Yeah, it's a way of chilling out that that stage. And you can obviously do that through different means as well. Um, but, yeah, I've seen some cool stuff done where you, I've seen some designs where, you know, that that feedback stage has been filtered in some way as well. So you're getting a bit like how you have a, like a presence and a depth circuit on the negative feedback line within the power amp. You do a similar thing at a, at a, pre, at a preamp stage to actually change the dynamic response of that, of that gain stage. Some amps desperately need it too. Yeah. The amount of, the amount of gain that they have. Too much gain. I mean, there is like, it's funny, isn't it? There, there's stuff out there that is just like, I don't know, too many stages, too much gain. Even some of the stuff that Marshall, you know, after Marshall kind of moved on from into the, sort of the, you know, the DSL era, yeah, the JCM 2000. JVM. It's too much, too much gain for me, man. Right. I like a lot of gain, but it's, it, it, I guess it's the style of gain. I mean, some amps, the amount of gain stages that they have, and then they also have clipping added on. You're just like, <laughs> <laughs> then you have to use local negative feedback to reduce that gain. But then again, it does add a character. It adds a texture to it that you couldn't get otherwise with a few with less gain stages. Yeah. And you know. This is it, man. Um Mr. Woodchuck saying, uh, with your four by twelve mic, would you recommend the V thirty DV seventy sevens and an X pattern or two and two? So honestly, I do prefer an X pattern. There's there's a lot of controversy about mixing speakers, whether it be side to side X pattern or top and bottom. In my opinion, in order to get the best, uh, the most consistent soundscape based on where you are in the room, I do like the X pattern of the V30 and DV77. Uh, I think it's a little bit better than just having one speaker on top and one speaker on the bottom. Because once you're actually standing a couple feet away from a cab, the two speakers, while they're different, uh, the V30 is going to have more fizz. The uh, DV77 is going to have a little bit more low mid growl and a little bit more low end. Once you start to step away, that actually starts to sound more like one single speaker versus going top and bottom. Um, I understand why some people go top and bottom or side by side. Uh, I personally don't like side by side at all because you walk over yeah. here and it's completely different than over here. Totally. But an X pattern uh, gives you the ability to actually have all those sounds generate into one source almost uh, from a small distance away and just alter the sound, give you some different coloration. What's the the efficiency match between the V30 and the DV77? They're almost identical. Similar? They're almost identical. And so there's a big misunderstanding about the overall SPL rating. So the SPL rating is not your actual max level of how loud the speaker is. Uh, okay. Speakers are actually measured one meter, 
with a one watt power source and that measures the SPL and it's a nominal SPL. It's not the peak. So with the DV77 and the V30, they're both right around 99 to 100 dB for that SPL rating. If you actually overlay the two frequency plots over with each other, the V30 has a little bit more uh, one to two and a half K than the DV77 does, but it's not drastic. Uh, the V30 also uh, drops off faster on the top end, but then introduces a little bit more uh, 10 and 12K than what the DV77 does. It introduces in a few different areas. But overall, volume between the two is very, very close. And to everybody that thinks that the DV is supposed to be a V30 style speaker, it's not. It was never meant to be. It's its own thing. It does share some similar uh, component materials like a Nomex voice coil former which has a unique sound. That's the, Celest the V30 is the only speaker from Celestion that uses that uh, voice coil former that I know of. Um, but the cones are different. The motor structures are similar, but different because they're built by two different manufacturers. Um, the DV was supposed to be something that got the sonic characteristics of a speaker with that has a small dust cap, not like a GK, like everybody thinks it's modeled after. It, he... Mick wanted something that was a little bit more classic sounding, but had modern attributes in the mid range without excessive fizz in the top end and with a lot of separation of, of uh, notes. And it was able to handle a good amount of gain at a good amount of low end without getting mushy. Fantastic. Uh, Andrew saying he's just tuning in. Love all the Omega amps I've played. That's cool. Thank um, you. Is is the Granifier based off something pre-existing or totally original? Mike talked about this before, Andrew, and kind of said, you know, there's some, I guess, some connection to the to the SLO in terms of inspiration yeah. and so on. Anything Just in the very early stages. Yeah. After that, it's pretty pretty drastically different. Yeah, and uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's very different. Um, let's just see what else we got here, Mike. I think we might be through all this, man. Cool. Um, which is awesome. Paul saying, great live stream. Thanks, Gene's here. Nice to have you here, Thank Paul. You, Paul. Um, so we're mate, we're nearly at the two and a half hour mark, and I know it's getting I know it's getting <laughs> late for you. It must be getting towards um getting towards eleven o'clock, I guess. So man Yeah, it's eleven oh one right now. Uh well, I won't I won't hold you any longer. Hey, thanks for coming on, man. That's been no, absolutely awesome. it was a blast. It was yeah, a blast. it's been fantastic. And um uh hang on the line for a sec, man. I'll I'll just sign off um for everyone so guys we'll, we'll be back again next week same bat time same bat channel i'll let you know who's who's coming on we've got a, we've got a couple of uh couple of pretty exciting guests coming on so um that should be a blast next week um, thanks everybody for joining thanks for all the questions yeah. and uh compliments and uh yeah i'll catch catch you later guys all right